to Three movie podcast for Atomic Blonde. My name is Tom Chick. I'm here with Christian Matansky. I'd like to be known as Briefcase. And with an Atomic Blonde tagline, Kelly Wand. Finally, movie that makes me want to have sex with Charlize Theron besides Monster. Uh-huh. <laughs> I liked your tagline until the last two words. Yep. That's the important part. <laughs> yeah. I should stop rewriting things or even writing them. That's when things <laughs> go wrong. Monster's not Karen Kusama, is it? From my. Br- uh, no, that sounds uh, right. Yeah. Didn't she direct Loathsome, your favorite horror movie? <laughs> uh, she did The Invitation and Girl Fight. And uh, Anne uh, Fox. Oh, yeah, so of course, of course, yeah. She seems to have a history with Charlize Theron, I guess. Kelly Wand, are there other taglines? Goodman's best since Chud. I don't know what to make of that one. First of all, he's in Chud. Yeah, that's all you should make out of it. <laughs> <laughs> You're already overthinking these. That's all I have too. So that's not only that's the last one. You have to think. You have, that wraps it all up in a bow. Goodman's okay, speaking best. of wrapping things up in a bow, you guys are dumb. You should oh. know this, both of you, because Karen Kusama did not direct Monster. That's Patty Jenkins, the chick who did Wonder Woman. Oh. You guys are the Wonder Woman champions on this podcast, not me. I can't be held accountable for that that kind of business. That's up to you, too. Woman names all sound alike to me, except for Thurlby. Uh. That sexist? What's wrong with being sexy? <laughs> Thing is, speaking of sexy, tell the listeners what we saw this week. What better segue to this, maybe? <laughs> All right, I guess Dingus doesn't want to tell you guys. All right, this week we saw Atomic Blonde, Mm -hmm. a 2017 American action spy thriller mystery movie about how much of an influence Andrei Tarkovsky is on stuntmen, former key grips, and graphic novelists. It was directed by David Leach and written by Kurt Johnstad. I think it's Johnstad. Has to be Johnstad. Kurt Johnstad, based on the Oni Press graphic novel series, Ugh. The Coldest City, Ugh. by Anthony Johnston and Sam Hart. How come he, they get so many words for the Just say based on a dupe, dippy comic book by these dudes. Why didn't it just say that in the credits? Oh, no, uh-huh. pictures. Fuck that shit. Uh, Dippy comic book is an anagram for graphic novel series. Okay, that makes sense. Coldest City? Yeah, Coldest City. I can't can't believe they didn't go with that as the title. When David Leach uh, was reported to leave um, working on the sequel to uh, John Wick, he was said to be leaving for something called The Coldest City. And so it was originally reported as him leaving to work on The Coldest City. And along the way, someone thought of a way, way better title. They got some soundtrack licenses. Somebody decided to call it Atomic Wand. Because, you know, David Leach, you know, he's directed other stuff. Anyway, it stars Charlize Theron, Uh. James McAvoy, (laughs) Eddie Marson, Bill... Skarsgård. Is it third one now? <laughs> yep. Oh, that, so it is a Skarsgård. Okay. Is it, is it, did he play Bacton or whatever, the KGB guy? He's No, he plays the guy who puts her in the trunk and helps her and takes pictures. Oh, of her. Michael. Oh, that's a Skarsgård. Uh, that makes sense. Right. Yeah. He looks like a Skarsgård. Yeah, he looks like a young yeah. Skarsgård. 
Yeah, he's the son and the brother. Okay. Um, so Star. Bill Skarsgård. Uh, Sophia Butella. Yeah, uh-huh. I'll, I'll catch Butella from that. Roland Muller and Till Schweiger. Uh, <laughs> yeah, probably, <me> too. yeah. <laughs> uh, you can make my watch anytime, dude. All right, so Atomic Blonde is rated R. Oh, thank God. For sequences of strong violence, mm-hmm. language throughout, and some sexuality slash nudity. Kelly Wan, do you know why they don't list smoking in there? Because it's period piece. Because it's already rated R. It only smoking oh. needs a disclaimer only when there are impressionable young minors who might be seeing. Like this is a movie; it's already R-rated for the reason. So smoking is okay. They don't feel the need to warn parents about smoking in an you R-rated movie it. for adults, right? But in a PG-13 movie, if they're going to be 13 year olds seeing it, the MPAA believes rightly. Look, we should let parents know that you could. This movie could arguably condone smoking, so we're going to put that in there. An R-rated movie, they don't need that. So Kelly Wand. It sounds like you're with me 100% on the good work the MPAA is doing. Well, I mean, I wouldn't have said anything. I think it's fun for all ages. <laughs> so is that is that what your disclaimer would be on the little ratings? Like it would be rated R, and then according to Kelly Wand, and then there would be a list of things. Just fun for all ages? That's all. I'd, what the oh, – what's happening? Ben Foster's just come into my room. Wait, hang on. I'm in Hamburg shooting the sex scenes for Warcraft 2. I couldn't help but overhearing. I told the Warcraft crew to stand by and hopped on my Segway and came to Kelly's to read the following things said about Atomic Blonde on IMDb Scriven by Concerned Grandchildren. <laughs> Number one, character stabbed in back and can't reach knife to pull it out. (laughs) Children may not be ready for that frustration. (laughs) Number two, alcohol and cigarette use is fairly glamorized and looks cool. (laughs) Kids aren't ready for that looking cool. Number three, man bleeds profusely through shirt. (laughs) Number four, the main character and others drinks vodka numerous times. Shown close up, pouring into glass. (laughs) He just waved and laughed, guys. That was (laughs) awesome. Oh, that's so awesome that Ben Foster drops in and does that for us. I'm so glad. He wasn't out there all this time waiting. <laughs> you Kelly made it Wand- possible, Tom, because of your choice for Warcraft as an over last week, I think. That's right. It was better than Dark Tower. Everyone agrees. Some you, <laughs> you, probably green, you probably made sure that that project got green-lighted. Well, as you guys know, you guys are uh, a couple of amateurs here. Ben Foster dies at the end of the Warcraft movie. How is he going to be in the sequel? Uh Oh, come on. A lot of people die in the Warcraft movie. No, they don't. Well, in the 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 Marvel Universe, I mean. Like they can't can't simply refresh his character. Yeah, Dingus, there's no like magic spells that resurrect people in fantasy. Yeah, there's no magic. He picks up all this crap. He's a character. 
Can I tell you, I don't, I don't think the guy ever did this, so I don't mind letting this out. But there was a guy I knew who's a bit of a uh, – you know, I'm not going to say anything specific about him. What? But I just remember this one silly fellow once confiding oh. in me that he had a great idea for a, a, a series of novels that could be a TV show. And it was – he described it as Harry Potter meets CSI. Oh, well, that's who sent you that book. <laughs> All Someone right. sent me a fantasy book in the mail this week, and we're not sure who it was. Kelly Wanda said it's not him. I'm not sure I believe him, but <laughs> it's all right, the so awakening. Wait, Eddie, that, that's enough. Yes, Kelly Wand. I want to go back to your friend's pitch. Yes. Harry Potter meets CSI. Yes. Okay. Harry Wait, Potter basically solves. Yeah, he's, exactly. Wizard kids solving murders. That's kind of good, though. No, like not. they're necromancers. And you know what? It's that's good if you're writing. If you're, if you're writing CSI fantasy. If you're writing YA stuff, Kelly Wand. What if you show a 12-year-old Casablanca that's got smoking in it? You go, this is an R-rated movie. Be ready to leave the room a lot. Casablanca, first of all, Casablanca is not R-rated. And second of all, is parents can kind of assume that with movies that were shot in uh, whenever Casablanca was shot, 1944, whatever. How old is Casablanca? Am I right? Was I close? I think it's 41. What? Way too early. Are you serious? Does that make a big difference? I once I once said it was thirty nine and you laughed at me. Right, because the Germans was the, Ger- the Germans yeah. roll into Paris and it has to be yeah. after World War II started. Yeah. See, that's why you laughed at me. You maniac. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> All right. Speaking of dates and numbers and us not what talking about Atomic Blonde is at sixty three on Metacritic. Oh sixty on Rotten Tomatoes, seventy five percent of the reviews are positive. Idiots who thought, oh, I'm going to go see Atomic Blonde on Friday night, and then walked out of the theater and were given a poll by CinemaScore. They didn't really like Atomic Blonde. They just went, uh, B. They gave it a B, which is what? not good. Good on CinemaScore. A B is like getting a C. Too confusing. Atomic Blonde opened at number four with $18 million. It oh, came God. in behind Dunkirk's second weekend, the Emoji Movie's first weekend. Oh. Girls Trips second weekend, then came yeah. Atomic Blonde at eighteen million dollars. Kelly One, you know what comes after that? A real girls trip. That's a way to look at it. Is that the name of the synopsis? No. What would you call it, Tom? I would, favor your theories. I would call it Kelly Wand explaining something to me that I really need explained. Because hmm. okay. I have I have questions. Atomic Blopsis. Some spray paints all. Back in 1988, we had a senile president with bad hair who wasn't Russian. But this movie takes place in 89. Also, there used to be a Berlin Wall. Kennedy got the Germans to pay for it. This is not that story. Until that kind of. Some more spray paints all. Berlin 89, while Blue Monday plays. A truck hits a British guy with a mustache. A Russian guy gets out of the car and goes, You're not as good at being an opening scene of spy movie as you think, Garson. <laughs> he shoots him, takes his watch, and throws him over a rail. Since we hear an off-screen splash, I lean over to the shop man in a trench coat beside me and go, I guess he landed on a fat person. Some spray paints all ten days later. Charlize Theron takes an ice bath. She gets out, flexes her stunt woman's clavicles, and puts some of the ice cubes in water in a glass and drinks it. I look over at the microfilm sitting beside me and go, I'd drink her farts right from the tub. 
Charlize slowly sets a cigarette on fire in the sink and smokes a photograph. Then she's all, I mean, while Epic Trailer, the Epic Trailer part of that Hidden Citizens Epic Trailer remix of Iran plays, some neon red words are slowly all, Atomic Blopsis. <laughs> Charlize Theron walks around some places. An elevator takes her to a table room with Truman Capote in it, so she starts smoking again. <laughs> but, okay, but... Are you that's fair. That's, that's a fair. I'm that's explaining fair. the movie, Dingus. It's totally fair, fair enough. Dingus. I forgot that. I explain why. was in this. Yeah, it's Truman Capote. Truman Capote's all. This is John Goodman. He played a man trying to start a family in Ten Cloverfield Lane, also in Roseanne and Barton Fink and Punchline. Charlize is all cocksucker. Goodman's all what? You say something? Did you want to rewind the tape? Everyone shakes their heads. Poe lays a photograph of the mustache guy landing on the fat person and goes, how well do you know this man? The mustached one, not the fat one. He shouted hard at me one time, so I just walked faster. Capote's all. Yeah, she's uh, British. (laughs) Capote's all. He's dead. So is the fat one. He shows her a few frames of 16mm film of a guy's beard and goes, The owner of this beard killed him. He's Russian or German. His name is Bakhtin. The beard's probably fake, but it's all we know about him, so memorize its shape anyway. He puts a watch on the table. She's all, Thanks, but I already have one on me wrist and a watch. He's all, Oh. He puts it back on his wrist. Sorry, I thought I was picking up some signals between us. She's all, nope, I only saw the Philip Seymour Hoffman one. I thought you looked too much like, isn't she great in the trailers? Goodman, see, she knows who he is, Dingus. I got you. I'm the dumb one. Goodman's all, I might be in that. Isn't she great? (laughs) Wait, Midler's Prince of Tides, right? Charlie's is all. Should we replay the tape? They're all. Uh, <laughs> Capote reaches into a pocket and drops something invisible, pinched between his thumb and index finger, onto the desk. He's all. This is microfilm. You should see the projector. <laughs> Memorize its size. We need you to keep losing some that's in a different watch. There's also a character named Spyglass, due to the fact that he wears spectacles and works in espionage. Not sure what his spy name is. You'll also have some scenes with this man. While that Bowie song about cat people putting on lipstick from Inglorious Bastards <laughs> starts playing, he puts a picture of Professor X on the table in slow motion. Capote is all, what do you think of James McAvoy? She's all, disastrous bono sunglasses. Goodman looks at Capote and goes, that's an Irish singer. <laughs> we flashback to Charlize going to her room. MI6. She walks into a British table room. Benedict Cumberbatch is bald and talks like Alan Rickman. He's all. <laughs> About time you showed up, Theron. <laughs> if you don't get that microfilm filled watch back, all the clocks in London will be off by seconds. Also, the Berlin Wall might fall over. Berlin Fall. We don't want that rubble under us. So it's off to Berlin for you. <laughs> I'm crazy. <laughs> also, there's a quadruple agent named Satchel. I'm afraid the Wachowskis named some of these characters. The answer 
Remember printer cable from my folder. <laughs> Here's your cover story. Your name's Charlize Theron with two H's, both times. She's all cocksucker. Come back. So what? What was that? She's on nothing. Want to check the tape? There isn't one. So he just stares at her like she's high. We cut to McAvoy in a bar raising a bottle of vinegar and going straight from the Virgin Mary. <laughs> he grabs Spyglass, takes him outside, that makes him leave as East German show up. McAvoy kicks a truck in the balls, then sets a man on fire to crash into some extras near a building. <laughs> Never gets old. Then he's all, oh, I mean, he wakes up screaming to find himself in bed with two irritable Siamese twins. He checks his watch, realizes it's the microfilm one, goes, damn it! Checks his real watch, then goes, damn it! White split have to happen so late! Meanwhile, some Russians pick up Solisa to the airport, put her in a back seat, and drive her out. Guy in the back seat hands her a thing and goes, So, this is your first time in Berlin. So, he started Russian. <laughs> <In> German. <laughs> Just Berlin. <laughs> it's a coupon for Burger King. You'll need it later. <laughs> she punches him a bunch of times in the throat and nuts, then stabs her high heel into his ear. He's all, okay, okay, it's fun for Applebee's. But it's too late. She kills them and tricks the car into going upside down by not using the seatbelt right. <laughs> Attaboy walks over to the overturned car and goes, here's your shoe. She shoots it. He's all, okay, okay, here's your sock. Jesus. <laughs> Meanwhile, in a garage, the Russian bearded guy back team sets a ghetto blaster on the ground in front of some men kneeling to propose to him. It turns on <laughs> 80s version of 100 Bottles of Beer on the Wall by Lena Dunham. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Not a music guy. He tells one of the guys to dance to it. The guy moonwalks for a couple minutes. Turtle spins around its back, then gets him and goes, how's that? The guy beats him in the head with a toolbox then gracefully loses interest in the ghetto blaster. He pulls out a picture of himself and makes them all look at it. One guy starts vomiting. Bakhtin sticks the selfie in their faces and goes, this man was a traitor. He makes them look at it, and then some other ones of him smiling, lying naked on a bed with a heart-shaped pillow over his navel until they fall asleep. Meanwhile, a hot French girl on a motorcycle takes a picture of a cool-looking overpass. Meanwhile, a mortician standing beside Charlize Theron in a morgue unrolls a metal slab, Bearing a sleeping mustache man wearing a red and white headband like the kind sushi chefs wear. <laughs> it was confusing. She's all, yes, that's the man who shouted hi at me. I recognize his fat. Mortician's all, uh, actually, this is the man he fell on. Your guy's over here, I think. He eventually gets it right on the eighth slab while Killing Moon plays. Charlie's yawns at us in slow motion. You know how you're in a theater in Hamburg and the projector breaks and an usher comes out and tells you that they're not showing Transformers the last night again in English for another eight weeks and there's no refund? So you have to write the opposite based on a German dub version on Hamburg weed? <laughs> That's Berlin. <laughs> that night, Charlize attacks McAvoy with a vase in her purse for smoking in her apartment. And she's all, by the way, why is a hot French girl following the likes of me? 
McAvoy's all, I'd say I'm an attractive woman. I'll do the math. Wait, I mean, you're the puppet. I. She takes a cigarette out of his hand. <laughs> she takes a cigarette out of his hands and goes, this city's a powder keg and we're both barrels. She inhales, accidentally swallows the cigarette, and coughs for a bit in slow motion while Blondie sings Heart of Glass. Charlize has a nightmare about the exposition scenes of the movie so far, so she walks to a building with a door in it. She goes upstairs and into Garcon's apartment. Some cops show up, so she finds a whip somehow and kills them with it. She goes downstairs, <laughs> finds more cops waiting for her to kick and disarm them, then drives her police car to McAvoy's, where I guess no one will notice it. She walks around McAvoy's apartment while he smokes and smirks. Shields of magazine. <laughs> I see your library includes failed and stream. McAvoy's all free speech. She's all, oh, you quoted Machiavelli. It's on your shelf. He's all, I think I'm in love with the shelf. Her response to this is to go to a bar where back teen lights her cigarette, so she makes him talk Swedish for a second. The French girl rises up between them and goes, What is this? A threesome? For some reason, this makes the guy leave. <laughs> he doesn't understand. The French girl's all. I'm like Le Doyen. I want to be a poet, maybe a rock star, or get cooled off in a spy movie. My friend owns a nightclub. Want to come? Charlize is all. I can't. The French girl's all. Uh, come on. Berlin is doomed. You're relentless. As the French girl says stuff, she walks to a watch store. She winks at the guy behind the counter and goes, tell me about it. I'll say. The guy behind the watch counter winks and goes, you can say that again. He hands her a watch and goes, your watch is ready. Here's an envelope. I think I'll find the spittle. I sealed the flap with very useful. In a headroom. In a <laughs> God. What? In a headphone room, McAvoy listens to this with headphones on. Then he hurls them aside and goes, fucking Pamela. To trick some guys following her, Charlize makes her hair brunette puts on a hat. These ploys fail, so she goes into a movie theater to look for Dingus's diary. <laughs> okay, that's not... What? Dingus? That's for very serious listeners. Some guys hassle her, so she tricks one with a hose, then a bookcase. I nudge Jaden beside me and go, guess when that guy wakes up, uh, he'll be pretty well-read. Get it? Like the color? His bookcase injuries. See? Jaden starts replying, so I move to a different row. <laughs> Meanwhile, another guy tricks Charlize by strangling her, so she tries to open his cheek with a key. It doesn't fit. <laughs> he tries to kill her by throwing her at a movie screen but forgets they're soft Charlize wanders off and hang hangs out with her metro pale person sidekick on a roof and they drink bottles of salad dressing together then she goes to McAvoy's and listens to his recording of the French girl telling her earlier my friend has a nightclub Charlize turns the recording off looks at us and goes wait a second I like nightclubs she goes there finds the French girl and dances with her a bit French girls all. I've been dying to ask you a question. She kisses her. Then she's all. Here's another question. Let's go someplace quiet. 
They find a room I wish I was in and make out. <laughs> Suddenly, Charlize grabs the French girl's gun and goes, you should have been a poet or a rock star, but I'm still interested. They have girl sex. I look over <laughs> at Dingus and go, spies! Uh. <laughs> Hooray for Dingus! And his diary. In the interrogation room, Charlize lights a fifth cigarette to join the rest drooping from her lips. And goes, so I uh, pumped her for information. Get the yoke. Capote's all, so what did she say? Charlize's all, nothing, a mouth was full. Speaking of which, she lights a sixth galois. Smiling, she thinks back to the French girl leaning into her during sex and whispering, lost translation. Meanwhile, McAvoy tries to read the warranty on the watch parts under a microscope, gets bored, and calls Charlize. To celebrate, she wears a black bra and a dress made out of melted Bowie records. In the interrogation group, Capote's all, oh yeah, by the way, McAvoy had the watch parts the whole time and knew the plot of the movie. He called to tell us. Charlie's all, and nobody told me. Capote smirks at her as if to say, here we are in this. Charlize has more sex with the French girl in slow motion while a Clash song plays. Instead of finishing, she's all, McAvoy set me up. The French girl laughs sadly, then cries happily. Then she's all, when you act, your eyes turn different. Thanks for the warning, but they're going to get me killed one day. But not today. Since today I'm staying in having sex with you. Although I guess I could still have a heart attack. So. Charlie's back, boy. Tricks up the East Berlin guards by using an unlocked gate to slip through the other side of the wall. They also had big passports in case the unlocked gate gave them trouble. There's a parade in the streets, I think, to celebrate workers' wages or a new Eurythmics song. A guy takes tape off his face in a car. McAvoy puts on a Canadian Mountie costume. Charlize wears spy clothes and some pants. Spyglass they try to make look more presentable by shaving him and putting a coat on him, but it still doesn't help. Spyglass's wife and kids show up. The wife's all, cool! Charlize is all, more female characters besides French girls for me to have sex with weren't part of the plan. McAvoy's all, it's part of my plan. Gotcha. Since the parade's surrounded by snipers and Charlize and Spyglass's family stand out like sore thumbs, they decide to use it as cover to walk through. Bakhtin nudges a sniper, points at Spyglass, then gestures with his hand, shooting him with his finger. <laughs> the sniper's all, what? <laughs> you want me to squirt him with a hose? I don't speak German. Suddenly, Charlize makes everyone in the parade raise black umbrellas. She smirks at McAvoy and goes, this was part of my plan. <laughs> McAvoy's all, where'd you even get all these? Off to the side, Bakhtin shakes his fist in impotence. The sniper nudges Bakhtin and goes, hey, I still remember which one's Spyglass. He's short umbrella. Super close there. You want to shoot him? Bakhtin can't hear him over his fist shaking. Suddenly McAvoy's all, Jesus, I mean, uh, just reach to my pocket here. <laughs> Not doing anything. <laughs> oh my god, somebody shot Spyglass! <laughs> Wait, hang on, safety's stuck. <laughs> oh my god, someone shot Spyglass! Hang on, I gotta pull the trigger. <laughs> okay. Oh my god, somebody shot Spyglass! This is the trigger. Yeah, uh, trigger. Oh no, Spyglass! Everybody run! <laughs> Charlie's Spyglass into a room, tells him, stay here! Then tricks a couple guys on the stairs by kicking the shit out of them. 
I look over at the silencer beside me and go, wouldn't mind me on those stairs. Spyglass holds up two fingers. She kills two more guys tiptoeing up around the corner. <laughs> Spyglass is all. I meant I have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> she kills a couple more guys in someone's closet room. Another one tries to strangle her, so that takes a few more minutes. Finally, she gets Spyglass and tries to drive away. A guy bangs on the window and goes, I loved you an astronaut's wife. She shoots. <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't I mean, they were shooting it right here. So I was like, ah, she shoots him, gets rammed by a car, shoots it and reverses till a truck hits another car full of stalkers. She stri- drives to some water and parks without surveying their surroundings very much. And she turns to Spyglass and goes, Okay, I think we lost a car sideswipes them and drops them into the water. Spyglass is all, Hey, it's lunchbox on my leg. I'm starving. He drowns. Charlie surfaces. For some reason, the gunman have already lost interest and left. I guess Spyglass's wife and kid kill each other off screen. In the interrogation room, the tape player runs out of tape. Good meat eating a sandwich is all. Yeah, let's slow motion on the underwater stuff. Charlize finds her little German Damon sidekick who gives her a blanket and sets her feet on fire off screen. This time they trick the guards at the wall by just going through the toll booth in a car. When she gets home, she realizes she has an HDMI cable in her coat. She didn't notice before. So that's how McAvoy knew I was blonde. The French girl comes in and goes, I could have been the poet. Yeah, yeah, listen, leaving Spyglass behind in that building has taught me a lot about the perils of splitting up with people I don't want to see dead. So I'm going over to McAvoy's to kill him and leaving you here. Don't answer the door unless it's McAvoy with some piano wire. Or me, uh, me, if it's me with, if it's me, answer it. She goes to McAvoy's and finds the recording of her telling the French girl, yeah, yeah, listen, leaving Spyglass behind. She's all, damn that McAvoy, pulls another HDMI cable out of her coat. She goes back to the French girl's apartment. Although I guess the last one was on still. She didn't deactivate. She goes back to the French girl's apartment, but arrives too late to see how badly the French girl knife fights. Behind her on the news, an anchorman's all. And this just in, Reagan's speech has motivated people on both sides to tear down the Berlin Wall with their bare hands. Who knew that was all we needed? What a day for democracy. Nothing dumb and Russia-related will ever happen to America again. <laughs> McAvoy birds his TV set and walks to an alley until he finds a car with a stabbed tire and hears Charlize behind him. McAvoy's all, I fucking love Berlin! <laughs> she shoots him and with a watch it. My wrist! She sighs and takes his watch off while Duran Duran's song plays. McAvoy dies in slow motion. In the interrogation room, she takes out some photos of McAvoy listening to tape recordings, puts them on the desk, along with some recordings of him looking at pictures tape recorders. She's all, I think these explain everything. Capote's all, damn it, woman, I'm your superior. Cumblebatch walks in and goes, all right, forget everything that happened in this movie. He walks out. <laughs> some spray paint all. Movie not over yet. Charlize beats Bactine in a hotel room. She's wearing a dress. She heads into the watch and goes, by the way, my real name's Satchel. That's something spies carry. I think it was also Streisand's spy name in Yentl. Or as I call it, boy bay. She takes her hair off and goes, and this isn't a wig. Bactine puts on some rubber gloves. A bunch of men in suits with pistols enter the suite. She's all, I thought we'd eat first. Bactine's all, please be a professional. 
she's all, the joke's on you. I ordered a frozen one from room service. She shoots them while they stand around screaming and crying. She's all, take that, Russians and Germans. Stinky bags. Her sidekick sighs and looks glumly at her luggage. She takes her wig off to reveal she's wearing eye makeup, then goes to meet Goodman on a plane that's going somewhere. Goodman's all, cocksucker. She's all, I know, right? Uh, and I talk like this. I'm just glad it was convincing the way I said it. Did she do that? Some words to tell me the movie's over. The end. Thank you, Kelly Wand. Yeah. Awesome. All, right. All right. Kelly Wand, I did have some questions about the plot. I'm not going to ask you those questions. Why? I just answered everything. I don't know what's I think you were left. a little less clear on the plot than I was. I no, they're some... all going to propose that guy. No, I have That's notes. I, I have some corrections for yeah. you. I, I circled oh. some things in red pen. All but right. before we go over my notes, Kelly Wand, what's your over and under? What's a movie that's slightly better than Atomic Blonde, a movie that's not quite as good as Atomic Blonde? Uh, my over-under theme was movies about when Berlin was fun, uh, mm-hmm. starring a sexy girl. So my over is Victoria, and my under is Bridge of Spies with uh, Tom Hanks. Right. And the Would It Help guy. But, um, <laughs> Mark Rylance has become the Would It Help guy. That's, that's Yeah. Uh, he he was nominated for an Oscar. Did he win? Didn't he win? Yeah. He, uh, yeah, he won. won. Yeah, Kelly won. Well, since it's an honor just to be nominated, I focus on that. I don't really follow the winner. I call <laughs> him right. nominee because right. so that's Victor- true, too. Yeah, I'm sure. You know, that is correct. Uh, Victoria, uh, yeah, Donald Trump's a presidential candidate. That's true as well. Of what? Of uh, the United States, presidential candidate. Oh. Yeah, just like uh, yeah, Mark Award nominee, yeah. He's a reality uh, star judge nominee. So why is Atomic Blonde not as good as Victoria, but better than uh, Bridge of Spies? Well, Victoria's all one shot, and I got more into the characters than I did in this movie. But I really like this movie, uh, and it's fun, and it feels like a movie. <laughs> it's one of those movies, though, where it's like, it's what happens when you don't shoot the star of the movie on site, and she shoots everybody on site. So it's kind of like they always think they can take her alive instead of just like Joe Peshing her in the hotel room. <laughs> Would have been a much shorter movie, yeah. Yeah, but I liked it. I liked the action a lot. I liked her physicality. Um, I liked the cinematography. I liked the music. Was Goodman having sex with her at the end? Or throughout, and that was the. That's why he's like, "Why would you call me a cocksucker?" I don't think that was the reveal. No, there was no. Because I'm glad it was convincing, implying, "Oh, you're not gay. We're having sex." Is that what she meant? Uh, that's probably what I thought. It's, it's, it's an insult. It's not a description. Yeah, that's not. Yeah. <laughs> no, but then that's she goes, so... "I'm glad it was convincing." None of that is even implied. I don't know what you're getting from that. That's oh, not in their it. relationship at all. What are you talking about? I'm glad glad it was convincing was basically a statement of the whole movie. Like it was the summation of what we've just watched. It wasn't any indication of their relationship or that particular slur that she used against him. Right. Did you think he was giving uh, Truman Capote a handjob because he was sitting next to him? No, he's (laughs) not a cocksucker. There's no implication there. Well, dang it, that's Kelly Wan's interpretation, just like uh, the death at the end of Dark Knight. Yeah, yeah, Batman's dead, enough, John Goodman's yeah. having sex with Charlize Theron. Dingus, what's a movie that's better than Atomic Blonde and a movie that's not quite as good as Atomic Blonde? Right, so I went with um, movies where uh, I love how the protagonist in the movie is able to 
carry the pain um because I, I i'm i'm pretty i'm pretty nuts about atomic blood um and i love how well charlize theron carries the pain uh she gets beat up pretty badly and this is a non-linear progression and that doesn't necessarily make a big deal of difference for an actor because movies aren't shot most movies i would say the the majority of movies are not shot um linearly they're not shot in sequence you know you're going to shoot a a scene from the end you're going to shoot a scene from the beginning shoot shoot a scene from the middle based on when you can shoot those scenes so the actor has to figure out how things are going when they're going out but still i love the non-linear structure of this movie and i love how she understands and how she carries forth her 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 pain and how she uh, projects that and how she moves and how she fights it, even how she sits down, it, how she drives a car, the, the different things that she does because your body reacts differently when you've been beat the way she's been beat up. Uh, and I love that about this movie. So my over under is, is based on that. So my, my over would be, um, a Miller's Crossing, which is a much subtler version of this because Gabriel Byrne gets his ass kicked a lot of times in this movie, and he just carries it with him through the movie in kind of a subtler way. And it's this is this is just a gradation uh, because of you know he gets beat up in a telephone booth, he gets thrown downstairs. There's just a different way that that you carry your body when you've gotten punched. And I think Gabriel Byrne really handles that well. And so for the under, um, I would put John Wick too, uh, because John Wick gets uh, his ass kicked in tons of different ways, but I don't know that he carries it as well as, uh, as Charlize Theron does in this movie. Uh, my yeah, that my over under. Uh, it, it has to do with John Wick and John Wick Two. This being David Leach, one of the two guys who did John Wick. Um, John Wick was a very different kind of movie, and part of what I realized while watching this, this is not a John Wick. I kind of expected because it was David Leach. Hey, let's just do a John Wick movie with Charlize Theron, and I'm on board for that. I was totally into that. But uh, it, as I was watching, I realized it's not that, and part of it is what you're getting at, Dingus. Uh, John Wick was a boogeyman. There was something like borderline supernatural about him uh, and how people were afraid of him and how people had heard of him and how he about him. Uh, yeah, and how he could, could move in combat and sort of magically avoid bullets. Like there was very much this kind of super, superhero supernatural quality to him that one of the things that's apparent in this movie early on is she's not that. Uh, she's not that at all. John Wick never bore bruises the way that she did and the way that she's introduced actually. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, what I realized is this is instead a movie about – it's a spy movie. It's a spy movie about British intelligence, about British spies. So my over and under are movies about British intel, intelligence gathering. My over is Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which I adore, which I think is a fantastic movie. Uh, I'm currently watching – well, yeah, so I love Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. This isn't quite up there with that. Uh, this is nestled against it because I also really like this movie. 
This is way better than another English spy movie uh, called Casino Royale, which I kind of liked for how it was a departure from the glib James Bonds and how it was a more sort of visceral, meaty, vulnerable James Bond. Uh, Casino Royale I'm not crazy about, but it was cool. So I would put this way above Casino Royale, uh, but not quite huh. as good as Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy. So what I discovered is it's not a John Wick. It's a, it's a spy movie. With some uh, real physical payoffs. It's not – there are, I'd say, maybe three action scenes in this movie, whereas John Wick is almost continuous action scenes. And these action scenes are earned. This is not a movie about those action scenes. It's a movie about earning those action scenes. Uh, I do feel that the plot is a bit nonsense. Uh, I am. I. I, I, I didn't understand. Who is she? <laughs> if she's a triple agent, she shouldn't have to be fighting that much. Yeah, so uh, I, I've seen this twice. I know Dingus has as well, and I still have questions, things that aren't clear. The second time I'm a little bit clearer on what was going on because there's very much – I think the movie is very much geared towards that gotcha at the end. It's super in love with that idea, and I'm okay with that because I was carried along with it. I didn't expect things as they happened. I'm dumb enough that the movie surprised me when it wanted to. But upon reflection, I was like, well, wait a minute. Hold on a second. What about A and what about B and where does C fit in? So the second time I watched it, I'm not entirely convinced it, it's honest or it's forthright. Uh, but I think I'm okay with that because what carries this movie for me is it, it's all about Charlize Theron and the character she plays, her physicality that we've talked about, uh, and just her cool sexiness. And the movie is as cool and sexy as Charlize Theron herself, and that's the driving impulse behind this, even though I do think the story is a little bit nonsense. Um, so, Kelly Wan, did you have questions? Yeah, I want to say um, I do – I have a real weakness. I think we all do real quick for like movies where the, the hero gets fucked up. Like in Raiders of the Lost Dark, that's what to me is what – why that's the best one is like when he fights the bald guy, he gets tweaked, and he gets visibly like – and then at the end – when she's fighting that strangling guy and they're both they can both barely move i really like that kind of thing you know i almost had raiders as one as in that in my little theme of heroes getting their ass kicked because of that but because it's done for comic effect and they have that scene on the ship where it's like this hurts that hurts yeah this hurts. Uh, i dropped it but i love what you're saying there and then he never feels that way again and james bond rarely ever feels that way but um, I feel like my under should have been Haywire, because I think that's a John Wick yeah. version of this more. And this made me see the flaws more in the – because I was a real big defender of Gina Carada's performance. That movie to go, it's just your character. Like, she's playing someone who's, who's only good at fighting and can't say lines that excitingly. <laughs> but after seeing Atomic Blonde, I go, well, all right, maybe – this is a better idea for an enter entertainment. Um, well, but my well, question is – Go ahead. Well, no, go ahead. I was going to say, we had a lot of listeners write in this week, and one of them was Chris Markinson, who's kind of talking about this same thing, and he loved how she kicked ass and also got her ass kicked. And he, and he says both of his favorite movies this year had lead characters take a heck of a lot of damage. So, Yeah, which I guess you need... Because the R-rated Die Hard's the one where you feel like John McClane's in the most pain... And then later on, he's just like, eh. and that's another reason Die Hard's great. But my question, Tom, is if she was working for the Russians the whole time, mm -hmm. why were they trying so hard to kill her? Like, 
Shouldn't exactly. She... And why was she trying so hard to get Spyglass out? Dingus, do you have an answer for that? So, Dingus, are you are you like me in that you? How do you feel about the story before we get into the weeds about this? What, what's your overall take on it as a as a spy thriller with a gotcha at the end? I, I love the story of this, even though I did see the idea of because I, I did kind of sit there going, why is she doing this English accent? And then I at some point during the movie it clicked that oh she's doing an English accent because she's doing an English accent. Um, and then, in fact, we we have uh, a listener. I think it was Nick D who said her back her bad accent is a deliberate choice uh, because he he watched uh, the Huntsman movie and he said her accent in that is spot on, and uh, her bad accent in this is a deliberate choice. I don't think her accent is that bad. I I love that you know Eddie Marsan calls her out a nerd German language thing, um, but. It did click for me at at a certain point, but most of the listeners who wrote in, like uh, Shaheen Ali said, the plot sailed right over him. Um, I didn't have a problem with it. I didn't have a problem with any of that. I mean, it made sense to me. So can you answer Kelly Wand's question then? Because I think I might be able to if you can. What's Kelly Wand? What was your question again, Kelly Wand? Uh, If she's working for the Russians, why are they trying to kill her? All the time, and why is she? Why is she so? Uh, why is she trying to get Spyglass out so hard instead of just deliver him? Um, because she's Satchel. But they know that, right? Yeah, but there's more on that list than just that. But and at the end, she, okay. she wants the list for herself. They want the list for themselves. They're working. We, at, they're they're opposing, right? Yeah, but even at the end, he assumes she's done what she was supposed to do. Right. Her, her main cover, her deep deep cover until the twist, is that she's a double agent working for MI6 who is actually working for the KGB. She's a double agent working on behalf of the KGB to retrieve the list. Why does she fight against the Russians? Why are the Russians trying to kill her? Because she's actually with the CIA, right? Through the Russians. No, but no, why the Russians think Yeah, that? why would the Russians the, – she's a triple agent – Leaving aside that, because that's not something that we know until the end of the movie, why right. would the Russians be trying to kill her? Why does she kill the Russians? So here, here I, let me because, try this because oh, – go, go ahead, Tom. Oh, go ahead. Kelly Wand, I don't think the Russians are trying to kill her, and I think that's one of the really cool reveals. The Russians keep saying he just wants to talk. He just wants to talk. The Russians aren't trying to kill her. They're not going to snipe her. They're going to sk- snipe Spyglass because he makes the the list, the, the watch list, redundant. Like he makes it superfluous. Right. They don't need it. So they are just trying to kill Spyglass to maintain – to make sure that this list, the contents of the list, which are now in, in Spyglass's head, don't make it to the British. Right. Uh, however – But they are trying to kill her at the end, obviously. Well, right at the end, once she delivers the the contents, right? Because at right. that point, I thought that, that Kelly, I thought that was Kelly's question. Well, at that point, uh, uh, Percival has told Bremovich, the KGB, that she's a triple agent. At that right. point, her, her her cover is blown. But when right. they pick her up at the airport, the guy in the back yeah. seat with the gun isn't going to try to kill her. No, nothing untowards is about to happen oh. to her. Oh, she okay. she just beats the hell out of him, and they're like, "Wait, what? You're you're working for us? What are you doing?" We as the audience, we don't know that, by the way. Like that's <laughs> yes, not something that you, you understand yeah. the first time you see the movie. And this is a recurring like the Russian. We're we're made to think the Russians are going to try to kill her, 
Because, and why do they still think she's on their side after right. that? I, I love that they reveal, Tom, and I and don't. I love that when you see that the second time through, and she takes off your her shoe, you're like, you don't need to kill that guy, right? She, <laughs> she, yeah, the guy hands you the card for a reason, uh, but she's she's hyper aware of what's going on. Well, but not, I thought I thought Kelly's question was about the end of the movie. She knows, by the way, that Percival is following her. She knows that right. she's got to put on a show for. A, she might even know. Okay, what's, that makes sense. That she makes knows sense. she's right. got to put. On, so the whole thing about the Russians trying to kill her does not happen until after she gets that phone call. John Goodman slips her the phone number. She calls the phone number and the weird creepy voice says satchel has been compromised she right. is satchel at that point the russians know she's a triple agent they right. don't know that she knows that they know so when she comes to paris they think okay we're going to get this list and then we're also going to take care of this deep triple agent who's working on behalf of the cia we're going to kill her then but she's got michael her contact from east berlin set up to, to protect her and she in the, instead murders uh, Brimovich. Um, but that, that was something I wondered about too, Kelly Wand, is well, what's the deal? I don't think the Russians are trying to kill her. When they ram, when they're chasing her in the car, when they're fighting her, I don't think yeah. those guys I mean they're they're trying to expecting they're, it. They're trying to kill Spyglass and then they're defending themselves. She is going off on them and they it is their understanding, and this is kind of funny, that she's on their side. <laughs> <laughs> but then why does Bremovich assume that too after all the agents like there had to have been a couple survivors or did they, or they knew that it was from the ballistics that it was her gun that killed all their agents the well they, no, at that point Bremovich knows that she is so the whole thing where she's getting out spyglass is isn't that after uh Percival has gotten the list and therefore knows she's a triple agent yeah but Bremovich would still wouldn't he? Wouldn't he sees that she doesn't kill? Like she's helping Spyglass bring that, the umbrella. That stuff? is one of the the plot holes for me. Is I'm not buying Percival's motivation. Like, well, it, you can't you can't assume that Brumvich has been able to read this list. Well, it's, he's not. He hasn't read the list, but he got a call from Percival. Percival called him, and that's the thing that Delphine. Well, Percival is all about distraction. I mean, Percival is constantly distracting with everything he does. Right, but there's a there's a there's a shift in the movie, Dingus. If you recall, there's a point where Delphine says to Lorraine, "I have something to tell you about Percival," and what she has to tell Lorraine about Percival is this: Percival now knows you're a triple agent. Percival at that point is on to her. Uh, that's where her, her identity – and Percival tells Bremovich. Percival shares that with the KGB. After that point, I, I think – and I guess this oh. is a hallway fight. At that point, I think maybe the KGB might be trying to kill her, although actually I don't think they're trying to kill her because they want to capture her. They want to get no. the list. Uh, so, so, uh, but, but the whole reveal is that Percival finds out that she is not just Satchel because he has the list, and the list tells everybody's identity and who's working for whom, and the list right. reveals that she's a triple agent. When Percival finds that out, why doesn't he tell MI6? And the, the movie's answer, which I'm not entirely buying, is that he was more interested in aggrandizing himself as an agent. This whole idea of oh. I'm going to take tea with the queen. Uh, there's this idea that he, you know, rather than, you know, if he had turned in a triple agent, the queen would have loved that as well. Uh, right. So, so the movie does a lot of things that I think are kind of cheating. To make us think that Percival is working with the Russians, that Percival is Satchel, that he's the double agent. Right. Really, he's just a, a perfectly legitimate MI6 guy who is just crappy at his job because he doesn't tell MI6 when he gets this huge, important piece of information. Uh, 
and and that's the little hole that I'm not sure I really buy. Uh, so I thought maybe you- they do, and that's why Toby Jones. No, the 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 CIA. I mean, the, the MI6 is, is clearly in the dark about all this. They I, so. Yeah. Why is she preserving the list? Well, the, okay. Here's another cool thing too about the story, and I'm defending it way too much because it's. I think it's a little no, bit. I, honest, I love I love the story, I like, but I'm, yeah, I I'm wondering what your sense. your idea is. Why the she's, she's worried about because she's she, preserving both lists. She well, well, the the list simply means uh, her identity as a triple A. The MacGuffin in this movie is not the list. The MacGuffin in this movie is the fact that she's a triple agent. And that's what the list will reveal. She is getting this list because it also reveals other things on behalf of the CIA. But that's almost beside the point because the risk here is that the fact that she's a triple agent is in that list and she will be outed. And she is outed, by the way, partway through the movie. So the MacGuffin isn't necessarily the list. She's going to get that. That's fine. That's good. I mean, I guess maybe that is the MacGuffin. But the point of the MacGuffin is that it reveals that she's a triple agent. That's the deeper level that she has to navigate. She doesn't seem to have any effect on anything. No, I I disagree with that because (laughs) otherwise she would just shoot any Marcel in the head because he's the other list she's saving him right she's trying to it's preserve working. him See, because there right. there is there's value trying, in that right. list other she's than to, her right. she's trying to get for it for the cia the, she's trying to get it for the cia exactly that's her overall right. objective is go get this list but in the course right. of the movie and what complicates things is that and, and what one of the reasons that she needs to get the list and the CIA wants her to get it is that it reveals that she's a triple agent. It's not – in a lot of spy movies, you've just got microfilm and, oh, what's on right. it? Plans or a for knock, it. Knock list, yeah, it's a knock list. Their agent's name is going to give it away. What this movie does is takes it one step further, and her secret identity that the audience doesn't know and the movie is going to trick us about is the contents of that list that make it meaningful during these events. Right. Uh, but no, she doesn't shoot. She needs to get the list. She doesn't shoot Eddie Marsden. I mean, presumably there's this idea that she gets these emotional attachments, that she cares about this man and sees that he's got a family she, life. But she, she likes only Delphine. Doesn't shoot him. Yeah. She, she likes Delphine. She doesn't shoot him also because they don't have the list yet. She doesn't know where the actual list is. This is her only alternative to, to not – this is an alternative to not actually getting the list. But, she needs to secure it, but that's why she doesn't shoot him in the head. She's not trying to, to get rid of the list. She's trying to bring it to the CIA. But if her only uh, – that's why I was kind of disagreeing with you a little bit earlier, because if her only thing is to protect the third – the the fact that that she's Satchel, then she would just dispose of him. Right, but But she needs that list. Right. Her her ultimate objective – if you go into this movie uh, a second time watching it thinking, okay, what does she want primarily? It's to get the list for the CIA. That's who she is. That never falters everything she does. I mean there are other aspects to her character, but that is her consistent objective throughout the movie. Halfway into the movie when after James McAvoy is reading the little microfish, then the fact that she's a triple agent is out there, and it's given to certain people, uh, and it, it changes her objectives and how she can interact with different people. Uh, and I kind of wonder, her going into the briefing with Toby Jones and John Goodman, I don't think she knows whether or not uh, uh, James McAvoy told MI6. I, right. I don't know that for, for sure uh, because I was – on raveling so many other things but i'm wondering is that in this briefing room is she worried that she's at risk that she is going to be uh arrested that that, that her cover has been blown and i, I don't know that, that has to that. be that there's supposed to be tension in that scene and right. that has to be what it is because there wouldn't be any otherwise right she's otherwise just reporting on it yeah well how do you feel about I, that that I, whole 
that whole structure of the movie because this is something that uh, one of our listeners, Soren Hoagland, is talking about because you know he says, "Hey, ding dongs," as now people are all going <laughs> and uh, and Kelly. So I know Soren. Yeah, Soren didn't like it, by the way. I think right. Well, he he says there's so much to love about it. Um, I, I just want to read this line from him because it's a great line. Uh, Super spy Charlize Theron gliding like a shark through 80s neon-soaked synth-pop West Berlin in outfits that would make Bananarama die from jealousy. That's just a line yeah. that Soren says. So um, what Soren doesn't like about it, and he doesn't like a ton about it, is that it has no understanding of how to tell a spy story and how to do all that information or how to do or how to evolve mo- motives. Uh, he says there's nothing about this movie that wouldn't have been improved massively if the flashback structure hadn't been excised completely. So uh, what do you guys think about that whole, I mean, that whole idea of the flashback structure, which I really kind of love Soren hates, um, and you, Kelly, kind of said that you don't think there's any uh, dramatic tension there. No, I said there is. You mean in the oh, interrogation? Yeah, because that's part of yeah, the flashback yeah. structure. No, right? I said that there is. There is. I said there's supposed to be tension, and that's. And if you take away her uncertainty about whether they, the principals told them, oh, I see. oh natural, I see. then that scene's kind of boring. So, and like just, I and. and yeah, it's just a fake out, by the way. Like that's the thing is, that, and I can understand Soren's complaint is a lot of this uh, storytelling. Unlike something like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy or really good spy fiction, a lot of the storytelling here is audience manipulation. It's borderline right. cheating. It's tricking yeah. you into thinking one thing using the language of cinema when that thing is not true. For uh, fun. <laughs> for fun, yeah, yeah, and I don't mind that, by the way. Like, I didn't yeah. expect. That's the thing. Is going into this, I, I really was thinking, okay, it's going to be John Wick, and I was delighted to discover this convoluted spy story, which was something a little bit different. You, this uh, is this is no Tinker Tailor Soldier spy. Like, it's not that kind of spy no. movie. It's a spy. It's a spy movie. It's a whodunit. It's a. I'm going to trick you. It's a Kaiser Soze kind of no way out sort of thing. Like all right. about the gimmick at the end. That one reveal at the end, and everything is pretty much in service to that. I think. Rather you told me to. Watch this movie called uh, Shimmer Lake on Netflix, and it had this flashback structure that if it hadn't had that structure, the story would have been lame. Right. Like it had to tell it exactly the way it told it, and then you go, ah. And so it is is audience manipulation too, but it's very clear why they – at the end you go, oh, I see why they did it that way. Right. As you're watching, you're like, what? Why don't they just tell me what's going on? No. Go ahead, well, just I was saying, in this, I didn't feel that same sense of, oh, that's why the thing, because I just felt mostly confused at the end, too, till you told me. But I thought maybe that was just on me. So. Well, I do think it's not like, like Shimmer Lake is all about structure, and it, it's not a right. thing. Like, the structure in Shimmer Lake is beautiful, and it's a very intricate thing, and it fits very, very well with the story it's telling. Uh, mm. The structure here, I think, is a little bit convoluted to trick the audience purpose spy movie yeah i mean it's 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 genre there's a lot of fake outs and a lot of we don't want you to know this and uh so yeah yeah structurally that that whole flashback thing though with the interrogation room i can see soren's point but if we do assume that she's not sure yet whether she's in the clear if we watch her performance there and i do think this is the case 
yep. her being cool and impassive is also her being reserved and maybe a little frightened and uncertain about how things are going to turn out. Uh, I think that that scene becomes more meaningful. Uh, and also, I just I love. Uh, it's not technically an interrogation room. It's a debriefing. But I love interrogation room scenes. I've been watching The Wire mm-hmm. lately. I love mm-hmm. the dynamics. Uh, you know what? Maybe because uh, that's, that's that could be a three by three, right? Like the the power dynamics of when somebody is in an interrogation room. We've done, we've oh, done that. Okay, we're only gonna we did a three by three on interrogation rooms. Yeah. No. Really? Did? Man, yeah, we've we've done three by three interrogations. No interrogation rooms though, because well, I, like oh, towards, right. the thing about an interrogation room, Dingus, is there are no features in it. There's nothing. There are no props. There's nothing that people can fiddle with. And if you put a prop in there, it's for a specific reason, uh, and it's just it's a very specific power structure where someone has been arrested and someone mm. else wants to get information, and they know the other person can't leave the room. They have them there for as long as they want. So the specific dynamics of interrogation rooms. I've uh, been enjoying lately, and this cigarettes. is kind. This is kind of like that. Yeah, like are there cigarettes when she's tapping the edge of the ashtray, like little touches like that. Uh, you know, in the wire, there are points where there's an interrogation room, and the significance of a photograph on the table uh, is huge. You know, that's there for a reason. Um, so I've been appreciating interrogation rooms lately, and even though I understand Soren's point that it could have been cleaned up. I enjoyed the interrogation room, and I think that that tension about her not knowing if she's in the clear is part of the, the drama going on there. What I loved about that was the dynamic that you understand watching it the second time through when John Goodman's character says – after she says, this isn't – the things I have to say aren't for the, aren't for the CIA to hear. And he's like, well, I could go behind that glass with everybody else's in there, but it's getting pretty crowded, and there's two dudes in there. <laughs> but she doesn't know that. But there's this dynamic that you don't know that's between the two of them. Uh, you know, it's this great. Uh, it's not even cat and mouse. It's like cat and mouse and mouse and mouse and mouse. And it's, I I kind of feel like that's a cheat though. Like, why would she not want her superior officer there? I thought she was going to take because, out Toby. Because she's <laughs> because she would be because she's. In MI6, and she would object to that. I mean, she has to object to that because yeah, that she's on that side. Me. Yeah, I'm not. But she wants to misdirect me. She has well, it's to. There, it's, no, it's there for audience misdirection. It's there to make us think that they're antagonistic towards each other with their but relationship. Also, the same reason that he pokes her in the chest, like like the movie's trying to trick us and make us think, okay, she doesn't like him. They don't like each other. Uh, if 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 she was really there, worried about her cover being blown. And if she was really working for the CIA, I can't imagine she would object to the CIA participating in a debriefing, especially if he was there on the mission with her, like if he was her no, contact in, in Berlin. Yeah. No, but she's she, misdirecting Toby. She's to misdirecting Toby. I mean, that's why does she have to do, Right. Okay, absolutely not, because if Toby knows if she's going in there and she thinks that he might know she's a triple agent, why is she going to bother objecting? And there's no, there's nothing that says an MIA, uh, an MI6 agent has to object to the CIA being present. She's I mean, judging his reaction and sees if he just laughs at her, like, oh, you and your stupid misdirection. Who, who would laugh at her? John, John Goodman would laugh at her. No, Toby Jones does. <laughs> no, I think it's, it's for like many things that James McAvoy does, like many things that she does. I, I think it's there to trick the audience, to make the audience uh-huh. think that they're, they have an antagonistic relationship. So that when we find out, nope, she's working for him, it's more of a surprise. Uh, I think that in the, in the internal fiction of this story, there is no reason she would not want a CIA agent there during, during the debriefing. 
Um, Sadly, I think you're right because at the end, when they when he goes cocksucker, you're supposed to go, oh, they're <laughs> right. friends, and like right. that's really the limit of how of what that twist is supposed to be. Like John Goodman's her friend. Oh, that as opposed be, to no, that means the whole interrogation was the southern. That, that may I, be thought, clear, I thought though. the cocksucker thing was more of a no way out sort of like that, that's not a British. That's not a colloquial. That's like an American thing. Pretty sure Britishers call each other cockessers. They well. have a lot of different names for it. Though. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I, think, I mean, and, and let me be very clear though. When I'm when I'm calling this out as being a dramatic device, I don't necessarily intend that as a criticism because more to the point, it's an effective dramatic device. I yeah. I understand that this movie cheats, and I'm okay with being cheat. Like I don't need yeah. a, a documentary honesty in a, a trick story like this. I don't need it to be an airtight plot. I can observe. The, the shortcomings that I can see on my second viewing, oh, okay, that's where you're trying to trick me. I can sort of see the strings behind the trick and the smoke and the mirrors and still appreciate the trick. Uh, oh, so okay. I'm not necessarily attacking or, or diminishing the movie when I say it's a dramatic trick. I just think that watching it a second time, there's no reason she wouldn't want the CIA in there. The main reason for that moment, and yeah, you guys are both right. You can come up with justifications for it, but I feel the main reason for that moment is to create a sense that they're antagonistic towards each other, so that we'll enjoy the trick later on. All right. It's I mean, more like I get a, that, but that's not as much of a trick as if it was an airtight spy thriller, right. like T- Tinker Taylor. Well, again, I get to this whole thing with James McAvoy's character, who I was kind of fascinated by because I now am in a post. I hate James McAvoy phase after Split. Like <laughs> yeah. I enjoy watching him, but he's annoying in this. So he's I'm supposed little, to be, though. I think. Exactly, he's supposed to be. You're not supposed to understand. You're supposed to think he's the bad guy for a little right. bit. So a lot of these dramatic cheats that that I chafe against more relate to him and his character. Uh, yeah, he's not in it much though. Like gives them, it's all her. It's her. She's oh, they're yeah. all back up to her. Like yeah. it's not like their love story or their love hate thing. Like she doesn't give a shit about him. She she's into Delphine and not McAvoy. I really liked that. I did too. Like, that's yeah. really cool. Yeah, because I, I was I was so worried because he was so unlikable that she was gonna have to like trick him into yeah. seducing him or some kind of thing like that. I was so glad it didn't go there. No, uh, it didn't at all. When she's astride him and smoking his cigarette, that's like yeah, that's foreplay. They're gonna have sex in a little bit, uh, right. but they don't. I love that. I love that that doesn't happen. Yeah. She has standards. Uh, <laughs> and I, I love your bit about uh, comparing her to Gina Carano because this is like this is what Charlize – this is what a good actor can do. Right. She plays this very cool, very, uh, very impassive. Uh, if any other actress – well, not any other – when Gina Carano does it, it's wooden. When she right. does it, it's inscrutable. Do like, different accents. Do this, do this twist, make this play. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, I, yeah, th- this is what happens when you get a really good actor like Cherise Theron underplaying a performance and not being crazy and over the top. Uh, That's why I'm bummed it's not making more money from what you said at the beginning. Like, yeah. It should be a smash blockbuster hit. Like, this should be the new Lucy. I don't, I really, it's, it's unf- I don't think Cherise Theron sells tickets the way that Scarlett Johansson why? I know, what? I know. I'm with you, Kelly Wand. I'm with you. Why? Uh, oh, just don't get it. Like Valerian? Never mind. That wasn't a huge hit. But like Emoji Movie? You'd pick the Emoji Movie over Wand? Well, that, this, is a matter of, no, this is a matter of demographics. Like the Emoji Movie and Girls Trips, Girls Trip had a but very specific 
demographics that turned out in numbers for it. Right, uh, and this should be for everyone, literally. It's an R-rated action movie. <laughs> exactly my point. <laughs> I don't think the people who went to Emoji Movie and Girls Trip would, would be into this. Uh, they should be. It's what they need, Tom. I mean, you really do have to appreciate... Like, I, I can see people being alienated by how brutal it gets. I mean, not us. We love that sort of thing. Wait a minute, but I can, why? Uh, because it's people. It's not everybody uh, enjoys like close-ups of gunshots to the face. I find that stuff oh. fascinating and and funny right. sometimes, gruesome and like I love the impact, literal and figurative, that that sort of thing has. Some people don't want that in their action. They don't want to see you know blood spattered everywhere. James uh, Bond movies, thirty or forty, fifty year franchise. Like this is as good as a James Bond movie. Right. Right. <laughs> But again, James Bond uh, is super like like James Bond does not splatter people's brains on the wall behind him. He should though. I agree, Kelly Bond. If James Bond movies, he should. That's I'm really glad that, that you brought up. I'm really glad that you brought up James Bond because uh, this is another thing that Soren Hoagland had to say that he he really liked uh, that he did like about this. Although you know one of the things he says at the end of his email to us was at least Valerian knew what it was. Which I think is a horribly damning thing to say about this. Movie. And also, I'm not sure I agree. Valerian knew yeah, what it I was. I didn't know what it was. Wait, I didn't know yeah, what it was. Right. For Valerian. <laughs> I, I have no idea. I have no idea. Take that and just rebalance those scales exactly. But, the but he he really liked uh, Soren. Really liked the tenderness that she had um, for uh, uh, Sophie. Yeah, for Delphi uh, versus the way James Bond treats his. Um, his female co-stars that he sleeps he, with. I like them both <laughs> for different reasons. That's I'm sure, but I, I just like that you brought that up, and I like that Soren made that distinction that that there was this tenderness between them, and as opposed to the way that James Bond might treat one of his. It it is fascinating. It it is notable that she is this very cool, impassive competent, calm, collected character, but the movie wants us to know that she also has feelings. With her her having the photograph of James Gascoigne, her having the nightmare about Gascoigne. Like that, right. James Bond has never right. had a nightmare about a chick right. he got killed, ever. And we right. know that about James Bond. And yeah, the, the idea that Sophie Butella shows up uh, as like the Bond girl who's going to get refrigerated, not just to be a Bond girl who gets refrigerated, but to remind us that She's not above using people, but she also cares about people, and she forms right. attachments. And you know, there are even a couple of lines to that to that effect about, uh, you know, what happens when you form emotional attachments. Uh, yeah, I love that we s- sort of get a glimpse behind this cool, impassive facade that she puts up, to that she's a person who has feelings. Uh, yeah, it's ironic. It made me realize something kind of odd about the James Bond movies is that the '80s James Bond movies were nothing like this. Like they didn't have any of this '80s atmosphere, and they were like the shittiest ones of the bunch, and they're just square and lame, like crappy '80s movies. Yeah, yeah. And this was just like seething with energy and like. Ah, well put. That's really well put. I like the way you put that. Yeah. Seething with energy. That's awesome. Shaheen Ali, another one of our writer uh, write-ins, and I said this earlier. He said he he loved the fight, he loved the audio and the music, which I really wanted to talk about because of uh, a specific um, term I wanted to 
try to remember. Uh, but he also liked some of the acting, and he especially liked the fighting. And I thought the fighting in this was amazing. It's amazing. And and Tom talked about uh, you know that fascination of watching people getting shot in the head or getting punched or whatever. And the reason I wanted to bring this up because you know Shane, Shane Lee reminded me of this, and then Tom reminded me of it as well, is that he talked about uh, the way that um, uh, the John Wick stuff is choreographed, especially in the club scenes, you know, where it, it's, it's all of that stuff is CG. Um, and, and how that works for him, because uh, the guy who directed this, David Leach, uh, is an uncredited director for both John Wick movies. Uh, he left John Wick 2 to do this, and he was uncredited on John Wick number one. Um, he's a stuntman. He, he's done most of his work in, in stunt work. And if you look at his credits, he's got extensive credit in stunt work and a lot of other things. Um, so was interested to hear what Tom especially has to think about the way that the fighting in this is different from the fighting in John Wick. Yeah, so the fighting in John Wick is very is very stylized and balletic. As I said, like John Wick is kind of supernatural, and the fighting gets to that. Nobody is as good as John Wick when it comes to that, that sort of gun kata stuff that he's doing. Uh, like he's the expert at that. No one's going to get the better of him. Uh, but but this fighting is it's it's much more. I mean, it's it's like. We're seeing her nightmares. We're also seeing her physical vulnerability. The movie is not afraid to show us her emotional vulnerability yeah. and her physical vulnerability. And John Wick is just simply not interested in that. And, and that's not a criticism because John Wick is a super simple formula that's very effective. It basically is, hey, Keanu Reeves is hot and athletic. Dogs are awesome. His clothes are cool. And this is a bitching <laughs> car. Go. And, and that's all that John Wick needs to do, and it does that great. Um this movie has other things it wants to do, including showing the main character's vulnerability, and that comes through in the fight choreography. Uh, one of the things that I loved is um, I, I think a lot of times when people are doing fight scenes, and this is definitely the case with John Wick, they want to look cool. They want the fight scene to make them look cool. They want it to, to glamorize them and aggrandize their physicality and their prowess. Uh, there's none of that here. Like her no. grunting and her yelling and her hair getting in her face, uh, <laughs> yeah. the way she throws her body into a punch even. Like this is not balletic at all. This is physical and brutal, and it's people trying uh. to damage each other. And David Leach has clearly choreographed it that way, and that was clearly an agenda. And it's also something that Charlize Theron uh, lives up to beautifully. Um, it's a little unfair to make this comparison, but I'm going to because I couldn't help but think of it. Uh, Charlize Theron was a model, and she came to acting through modeling. She's a beautiful woman. She has since proven her, her chops as, as an actress, as, as an action star. Uh, similarly, Gal Gadot came to acting through modeling, and she's, <laughs> oh also a beautiful, uh, she's also a beautiful woman, but she doesn't have the, the tone or the physicality that Charlize Theron has in action scenes, and that is clear from the very first shot of Charlize, of Charlize Theron, where we see the muscles in her shoulders. That is yeah. how we were introduced to her. Is you know, Dingus, you made fun of me for saying that uh, Gal Gadot no. doesn't have any tone to her I, body. I knew and this was going to come up. Okay, yeah. well, that, that's fair. I mean, that's not 
that she didn't have to. She was a demigoddess. You know, that's not what that movie was doing. Um, but this movie immediately establishes what it's like to show a woman who's toned. And Charlize Theron clearly trained physically for this. Even at the very end in that dress, just you can see the way she's holding a gun, the, the, the shape to her arms. Like she's in amazing shape. And David Leach doesn't use that uh, to, to – to say, hey, look how hot – it's not like Linda Hamilton in Terminator 2. Is hey, this chick worked out. She's super hot. He uses that to, to marshal the physicality of that kind of strength that she has. Um, right. So, but, but you're also right about the impact of the fight that's going on. And and I think that there that I, I think you're making a really good point here. And the and I'll use one one actor to uh, to sort of um, bridge those these two movies uh, is, and this is a guy named uh, Daniel Bernard uh, and he's in both movies. He's in John wick and he's in this uh, and he's the dude who gets, who is in the apartment and just in the knockdown drag out the key, the, the guy, guy who gets the key in the face. He's the guy who gets the key in the face. Ah, and he's the guy in John wick who is like, uh, he's here and he throws and he goes in hits John Wick with a bottle. He's the only one John Wick can't shoot with a gun in that first opening sequence. And then he's the guy who throws John Wick over the balcony in the club in the circle. Ah, club. That's uh, I did not know that. Great. Uh. That's the same dude. Uh, his name is, I think, Kirik or Killick. Killick maybe. Um, but in this, he's just called Soldier, I think. Um, but watching him fight John Wick, John Wick doesn't really take the... <laughs> damage in the same way he gets thrown off of a balcony lands on the floor and then runs away and then they they go on to fight like with a bunch of su uh, a bunch of sport utility vehicles at the church later on uh it's it's a different thing that happens in this apartment room where she's protecting spyglass while he's <laughs> while he's duct taping himself um and one of the wonderful things that you were talking about is is the different way that this movie choreographs that fight sequence with uh, Daniel Bernard because they're just they're beating the hell out of each other with whatever they can get their hands on, and at one point she reaches over and it's like and I think she grabs like a hot plate. I don't know yeah. what it is. Yeah, it's, it's like, like a little, a it's like little oven's thing, oven yeah. surface. Thing. Yeah. They also like grab a lamp. The first lamp doesn't work; it just breaks. <laughs> the second lamp, and the, and the, and they just are beating each other and beating each other and beating each other. And it's not like John Wick, where we're in John Wick. He's just going to shoot somebody in the head. They're not going to come back. John Wick. He always makes he always makes sure. But for her, she's they have to beat each other not only senseless but to death because even. After she has beat him and beat him and beat him, even <laughs> even with a corkscrew in his up. throat, he still jumps on the roof of uh, on the hood of her car. I mean, there there are so many more consequences in Atomic Blonde uh, for her physically. She gets thrown against the wall. She gets thrown down the stairs, and every time it happens, you see her going, oh. I mean, there's this wonderful, there's this wonderful thing that goes on, where where she takes the physical impact of everything that happens, and I love that about this performance. Compare yeah, that. To, to, uh, oh, go ahead. 
No, no, you go ahead. You go first. Well, compare that scene to the part in John Wick where John Wick and the black guy are like shooting at each other in that in that train station, and no one's noticing, and they're constantly missing. <laughs> and it's like if you're really trying to shoot each other, you're shitty spots because you're getting everything. But that's chapter two. <laughs> that's chapter two. That's true. But I did love that, that bit, though. That was right. hilarious. I love hate it. I love it because it's it's hilarious and kind of a cute character moment. And it's like they really aren't trying to shoot each other. But like compared to a like Atomic Blood ruins John Wick and it ruins Wonder Woman for me. Well, like, to be, I, I can understand that, Kelly Wan, but th- those movies are trying something very different. They're very different kinds of characters. Uh, I would say a movie that this doesn't ruin, and I've mentioned it before, it's not a good movie. Well, it's a silly movie, uh, and I think what it's trying to do, it does very effectively, but there's a, a, a young stunt woman named Amy Johnston in a movie called Lady Blood Fight. And if you uh, like yeah. what Charlize Theron was doing in this, Amy Johnston and this other cast of stunt women – do some really nice physical impact fighting stuff that it's not as as elaborate as this, uh, but it's that same kind of, hey, here are chicks who aren't just doing, whoa, Scarlett Johansson jumps on his head and wraps her legs around his neck and then flips over. Like that kind of Rebecca Ferguson stuff. Like that stuff is sexy and it's cool and it looks great. but it doesn't look painful. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't look painful. It's not what it's like when somebody right. punches someone. That's not how it right. works. It's stylized in fantasy combat. Uh, but yeah. this is not that, and it reminded me of a Lady Blood fight. Yeah. So I want to call out a specific moment in this movie that at first I was questionable about, but now I love. Because this movie is directed by a dude who's a stuntman. Mm-hmm. And it's that moment when she's done with the hose fight. And she pulls her yeah. cowl up over her face. Like her turtle neck, yeah. Yeah. And usually that kind of thing, you call out, Tom, and I think rightly, like, I'm putting the helmet on my head in, uh, you know, triple X <laughs> so that you don't have to see me, see the stunt person doing it. And let me lower I, the visor now. Yeah. <laughs> right. I think that that is, that is specifically meant as a nod towards stunt people. Yeah, I I think that is that when she does that and she's looking directly at the camera, there's a couple moments where this happens. But when she pulls that cowl neck or whatever it is, that turtleneck up over her face and then the fight happens and she's looking directly at us. I think that's the stunt man director going, yeah, we all know that she's not doing this right now. And you should know that, too. And that's cool. I think that I think that's a nod. Oh, but she is doing it, though. That's the whole joke, right? I don't no. know that she oh, is. Oh, no, no, she is. That's what I loved about that moment. So, Dingus, uh, you're right to call that out because there's no reason for her – four policemen, she's already beat the crap out of them, and they've seen her face. There's no right. reason for her to, to now disguise her face from two dudes. Uh, she's disguising it from us. Right, exactly. So she pulls it up, and then there's a cut to where the fighting starts. Right. But the fighting stops, and she pulls it down, and it's her. And I think that's the joke. I think that's what David Leach is doing. Is oh, he cuts right. away to show us, here's where a stunt woman might come in, even though we've seen her do some really cool stuff with the hose already. But that this is just a full-on front you know, shot of her interacting, no cuts, because there are a lot of cuts in that, um, in that hose scene. And I yeah, think I later on he plays with that by having no cuts. At least there are some tricky ones. There's some cheat cuts where you don't know they're cuts, but by having no cuts in the stairwell fight. Um, so he shows us this, the hose scene, and it's like, okay, she's playing with the hose. 
clothes. We're going to cut around it, so maybe there's some cheating. Now, yeah, you think we cut to a stunt woman, but she lowers the, the, the turtleneck, and it's Charlize Theron. Um, now, they could that could be a trick with CG. They can do that these days, which is amazing to me. But I think that's the movie saying, guess what? This was not a stunt woman, so that it's kind of setting up for later on that one continuous stairwell scene uh, of, oh. of the fights. Um, right. Which I, I hate to say this, that stairwell scene, dumb, did <laughs> not need to happen. I loved it. It was fantastic choreography. What that was so. <laughs> she goes into the building with spyglass, and they almost yeah. ADR over the line. She says, and you don't see her mouth saying it because I presume, I don't know if it was ADR later, <laughs> but she says, we need to deal with this or we're never going to get across the border. No, just leave. Like, what? Uh, <laughs> you've got, you've got right. between just to. So, I mean, I loved that scene, but it was another thing where it's like audience manipulation. It's, oh, suddenly she's got to stop these Russians, by the way, uh, who, who, or otherwise she can't get across the border. What? <laughs> Oh, I'm with everything except the line. Like the line needs the rewrite. Like justify it better in as many words. Like okay, we're, there's the building surrounded. We we have to get out or something. I yeah, know. yeah. I mean, I I, I don't a, know. Yeah, I don't know. maybe they just doesn't didn't care. Uh, but yeah, it was weird that she's like, okay, when there's a sniper, you don't just get away from the sniper. <laughs> you don't need to go up there right. and kick the sniper's ass when he's got backup. Uh, yeah, why did they? I mean, it was her idea to go on foot. That's the stupid thing. Like, it turns into a car chase, but if they're trying to get him out of the country and they pick a parade <coughs> with umbrellas and they already know they're going to be watched, like, they're going to get, they're going to have to run into a building anyway sooner or later, unless they just go by night secretly somehow. Like, is that not on the table? Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's just all because he wanted it's an action to, movie. Yeah. It's an action movie and it's a, Fantastic scene, but real spies would a real. I'm assuming the real side is like, okay, guys, we need every we need five thousand black umbrellas. We're not going to get. <laughs> well, to be fair, that wasn't a CIA thing. That was uh, her friend Michael, who I guess was East. That was my dumb thing. Like, ugh, what the umbrellas? You did. I, um, I like that. that. Why is that dumb. Why do? You, why don't? I don't understand why you don't like that. That was set up pretty all have early. Them, all crowds in on this. Well, yeah, that, was, that was her. That was her setup, because he says, you know, uh, uh, James McAvoy's character. I mean, uh, says, uh, you know, I've got my plan. And she's, uh, she says, I. She has hers too. Yeah, yeah. And you see them. You see those stacks of umbrellas being picked up. That was what the right moment is to do that. Like, okay, the snipers are going to shoot him before this, and then the snipers aren't just going to follow the parade, and then sooner or later, I don't know. Like, there's a lot of counter. To umbrellas. Yeah, if, if this had been a real spy movie, that would have been silly. But this is not a real spy movie. <laughs> That's is... based on a real event. I would have, I would have <laughs> said, room, guys, maybe we should just make them at least pink or something. I actually think it's from another movie. I don't know what, but I think the gimmick of the umbrellas wow. to protect someone from the sniper. I think that's been done. And, I, and by I, the way, uh, I, I think the movie um, that there are little snippets of like for, the shot at the end is very much. A Casablanca shot, right? When she's walking out to the Learjet. Uh, in the bar, when the music stops, when Brumovich is going to light her cigarette, uh, they, the music stops and there's uh, um, the song that uh, Sam plays. Casablanca. Oh. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but what's the song? Uh, as, time goes by. as Time Goes By. Right. Like that's playing on the piano. Like there are a couple of weird little snippets from Casablanca, which 
you know, Casablanca is about getting someone transit papers. So fair enough. But at the part when Kurt Kurt Loder says, uh, oh, sampling is sampling art. Like, I think in a way that's the movie saying, you know, we're just taking bits and pieces from other places. I hope you don't mind. Uh, These are Phil Henride. Well, it's also playing around with diegetic sound and non-diegetic sound. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Like MTV. And yeah, because it's yeah. He's the French guy. at the. I mean. One of the things I really like about the music in this, and I think this is something that Shaheen Ali has said as well, is, you know, like in that weird boombox thing before the boombox gets cra- gets smashed um, by the in the skateboard beatdown scene, which reminded me of Wanted and the keyboard getting smashed on somebody's face in the, in the way it was shot, uh, is the way that the music bleeds back and forth. You know, from diegetic to non-diegetic. You know, at one point it's coming out of the boombox, and then it bleeds into the soundtrack, and then it goes back into being something that's actually in the movie. So that mo- that moment that you're talking about, where uh, as time goes by, was really freaky for me. Just for how much it stood out. Yeah, it really yeah. stood out for me. I didn't yeah. quite get it. But, yeah, I, th- I think it was just a hey. There's a movie about transit papers. We're going to reference uh, no, Berlin. Right. Is that all it meant? Because there was no tragic love triangle. I know, I know, and that's and that again. I think it's just like sampling. Like hey, we're just bringing in stuff no, from other. And, and that's why I'm saying I think the umbrella thing might have been from another movie. Uh, well, uh, Arthur Giovanelli says that he thinks the twist is rote and derivative. Uh, sure, so, sure. Yeah. I mean, I don't necessarily. I mean, that's that's a negative way to put it. I think it's a familiar and a, a cool device, but uh, wrote it's and derivative no aren't out. necessarily wrong, right? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. you're when you're watching it, by the way, I think one of the th- you know that Satchel is either going to be Toby Jones, David Pers- or uh, James McAvoy, or her. Like there are only so many people right. that can be Satchel in a movie like this. It's not a uh, you know, and then there were none where there's a big cast and you have to figure out which yeah. one it is. There are a few principles. One of them is obviously going to be Satchel, and if you want to call that rote, I don't necessarily disagree, but that's what the movie is doing. It's saying, okay, which one of these do you think is Satchel? It could have been the other one. Right, right. I thought it was – I kind of thought it was her all, all along because of the no way out kind of idea. Right, right. Yeah. But that's why that's why I kind of feel too the movie really does some quote-unquote cheats, which again I'm okay with, to make you think it's, it's James McAvoy. Uh, but you later find out his motivation is, oh, he just – he was a rival agent. He wanted all the glory for himself, and he oh. wanted tea with the queen. Like, fine, whatever. It's a little but bit really, of a characterization, but it just needed to trick us, and I'm okay with being tricked. Uh, if she wasn't a triple agent, the exact same stuff would have happened. She just gone, all right, I got <laughs> hey, You're a Russian. I'm going to shoot you in this hotel room. <laughs> like, all the exact same bodies would have followed. <laughs> I'm but this is like Indiana Jones not doing anything at all. <laughs> you know, Dingus, until Kelly said that, I'm not sure that would have occurred to me. Is he right? Like, I guess so. By the way, I'm this other, I have this other name. Well, it's almost like they wanted us to take it one step further to make sure she's on the side of the good guys at the end. Like, it could have stopped with her just being a KGB agent. That additional layer was just to make sure we liked her when it was over, I guess. Well, maybe it's just about American arrogance, and we want the information instead of them having it. Because if if Britain had had it, it would have been just fine. But we want it. Well, 
I do love that you mentioned that, Dingus, because there is – and this, this is a big part of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy – is the Cold War dynamics between the UK and other members of NATO and the United States. Like there's still – Cold War wasn't as simple as there's the, there's the communists and the non-communists. There were these little – there were other little weird relationships that were going on, including between the US and, and the UK. Certainly like, like with Israel, we've got this weird conf- conflicted relationship with Israel and espionage in our past, even though we're, we're very close friends. Um, so, so I'm okay with this idea that it, it's meaningful enough in the, in the context of the time that she's American and not just British – but I think Kelly's right in that I don't think it was necessary for any of the plot points. <laughs> Her being American wasn't either, really. Well, the, the fun, the she fun accent. My six agent, huh? The fun, the fun accent bit. That, right. So, yeah, and so in a spy movie, there's no story reason for her to be one nationality or another, even though it's the last day of the Cold War, and so it's the last day it'll matter. And it still doesn't matter. Well, I did, first of all, I did wonder that she doesn't drop her accent when she meets John Goodman privately in East Berlin, by the way. So yeah. that's kind of cheat. But uh, well, there, she she knows she's being bugged, and she doesn't know how. That's what that's what I wanted to ask. Does she know she's being bugged at that point? I don't think she does because just assume you're always being bugged. Right, exactly. Yeah, but the information exactly. he's showing up to give her is, oh, you've been compromised. At that point, I don't. Again, I you can come up with justifications for why she doesn't use yeah, right. the why she uses the accent with him fair enough but i just noticed that the movie made sure she still used her english accent there um uh did you shush me no i was just gonna say she's a better spy than valerian I just wanted to say. <laughs> that's a pretty low bar to clear kelly yeah. watt <laughs> he's not as good a spy I, I assume neither of you know the source material no right? i was gonna ask about no. that Dingus, did you did you read a colder city or whatever it's called? No, I did not. But Nick D says he 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 likes to think that this movie gets how it feels to read this kind of gritty, stylized comic book, and he contrasts that with Sin City, which he says is all style and no substance. Ah, right, right. Um, so. Yep. Yeah. There was some really nice writing in this that I wondered, is that from the comic book or is that from the script? Like little touches like um, – Oh, yeah. Good. Give us some good writing because because uh, Chris Markinson has a bunch of lines that he loves. So yeah, go don't ahead. have any bad writing. So this can't be good writing, bad writing. But uh, the, the like one of them that jumped out at me, which I just thought was just, just great. It was, it was perfect. It was just the right tone. Uh, when she says to the German coroner, uh, it's a simple mistake. And the woman says, in Germany, we don't make simple mistakes. What a great line. <laughs> That's what they call it. Mistake. Yeah, that was a great line. What, what did Chris Markinson call out? Uh, a bunch. I mean, he liked the Sinead O'Connor hair. Right. He liked um, which department? A different one. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's good. He liked that David Hasselhoff's in town, and I did like that because uh, you know, you know, what follows is you know, uh, Berlin's doomed. I think is the next thing that comes right, along. Right. Um, you should have been a poet or a rock star like that. Uh, uh, you need to work on your German. It's horrible. And what should I wear for my tea with the queen? There was which, a, is a, which is a lovely line, and what does it mean? What should I wear for my tea with the queen? What is she saying there? I love well, that, that line. That's, he says to her early on in the movie, uh, if you do this job right, 
there's good things in store for you. I'm talking tea with the queen things. Like he C brings up to her tea with oh, the queen. Yeah, C C introduces that tea with the queen thing. Uh, James per- uh, David Percival uh, picks it up later. I think he even says something about I'm going to be the one having tea with the queen, implying he was told the same thing by C. Uh, so when okay. she says that line back to C, she's kind of throwing that back in his face. Uh, the sense of humor in this, by the way, was great for yeah. you know. But but I also just some of the the writing that was was not good not for being a choke, but for just little touches. One of the examples I noticed the second time. So Eddie Marzen, uh, you know, he's satchel. He's memorized the whole list. He knows everything on it. He knows Spyglass. Spyglass, right. Oh, right, right, right. Sorry. She's satchel. He's spyglass. Eddie Marzen knows that she is a triple agent. So when she says to him, I've never lost a package, he says to her, I know, and he takes a breath because he's about to say, you know, I know I've read your file or something like that. But the moment Uh, is interrupted by his family coming in. But I mm -hmm. love that little moment where he looks at her and he trusts her completely because he has read the file. Like he knows and he's starting to say, I know, but then they walk in. I love that little touch. It's so nice because the first time you see it, you don't think anything of it. But the second time you yeah. see it, you realize, is, yep, he knows she's a triple agent. He knows who she's working for. He knows her, her, uh, her, her past. She, she knows that she's never lost a package. Um, here's, a, here's a little subtle one that I might be reading too much into. Uh, when C is describing uh, – Can I just ask you real quick? Did you have any trouble understanding his name? Spyglass or is Stasi? No, Chief C. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was, I, a couple times I was like, who is – is it Steve? Or Yeah, I definitely did. I didn't it, realize it was like M or Q. I didn't did, realize it was a letter. I'm actually I'm just assuming. Isn't it a letter? I might have gotten it wrong. It is. It's, okay. chi- it's Chief C. It, but <laughs> Why do they Chief do that? Okay. I don't know. I just – I thought it was in his name or his code name. Chief C. Chief C. C. C's back there. I thought he was like named after an ocean. I didn't know what was going on. Yeah. Maybe he's uh, just a cunt. One, two, three, not only you and me, got 180 degrees, and I'm caught in between, counting one, two, three, Peter, Paul, Mary, three, getting down with three, Pete, everybody loves old All right, Kelly Wan, we're now an R-rated podcast. I hope you're happy. What? You can it's say that in the UK. You can say that in the UK. If you're not in the UK, you're in Germany. You can't say that word. Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to preach real quickly. Uh big mistakes here. I might be reading too much into this, but when C is describing the situation with Satchel, he says uh, Satchel is a—he's been a black eye to the crown. You no, know, we need to take him out. Uh, Toby Jones' first line to her earlier in the movie, when she shows up for the interview for the debriefing, is, "That's quite a black eye." Mm-hmm. Is that a coincidence? No. Okay. It's not a coincidence. Because that's good writing. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Uh, Wait, is Satchel what? Boy's little final thing about, uh, you know, which side you're on. It's right up there with black holes and to be or not to be, you know, in our line of work. Like, I I like that dialogue. It it was great for his character. Do you think let me help you with your luggage is an accident? I think it's a joke. Is that the same as an accident? (laughs) Like, no, when, when, you know, he says, you know, he he saves her from the car and says, let me help you with your luggage. And she's satchel. Oh, see, Dingus? Kelly Wan, get a load of Dingus there. Oh, uh, see? I go two layers deep. Dingus is a triple agent. Yeah. <laughs> He's uh, an what, do you think, what do you think about the Stalker movie? 
I don't have I've never seen that movie. I don't know Tarkovsky. Uh, I'm sure there's something going on there, but it was over my head. Can either of you explain it to me? Yeah, it's stalker movie. The stalker movie is the movie that they go into, and they have this whole Hitchcockian behind the movie screen. It's '89. It's yeah. Tarkovsky science fiction. It's a Russian director, and it's yeah. this science fiction about uh, a uh, stalker and the acronym, not. Uh, in the Stalker. movie, I don't. Is it an acronym in the movie? There's a game based on no, it. No, it's called the Sto- No, it's called Stalker, yeah. and it's about this dude who navigates and smuggles alien artifacts across right. a border through from the zone. So, uh, so I don't think it's an accident. Oh, the but, smuggling, very good. Yeah, Dingus. Yeah, like the so. I'm always interested in that kind of thing. Like, why did they pick that particular movie? Was that just because it was available and that was uh, period specific? But I think that. I think that them choosing the Tarkovsky movie Stalker is a. Re- it, I think there's a reason for it. No, no, it's very good. You very. You, I think you you hit it exactly. Thing is very nice. I didn't know that. Yeah. When she gets thrown through the movie screen, does the audience not react to it? Because that happens a lot in Berlin. <laughs> like, I, I think oh, another spy fight. Here we go. I think they've left by now. <laughs> I think they already left. Oh, there. Yeah. Right. She, she pulled it. That's normally Kelly one. When you pull the fire alarm in a movie theater, people tend to leave. No. Yeah. Wait. For Easter eggs. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Speaking of Easter eggs, let's do a three by three. Dingus, what is this week's topic? Uh, oh God! This is, this oh, wow, is, oh, you God. already got, you already got an oh God from Kelly Wand. Oh my God! Making. Jesus! Fuck! <laughs> ah, nightmare! Horrible! This is characters hey. crossing the street. Stupid Dingus! All right. Well, I'm introducing next week's topic, so I'm going to go first. I'm going to give you guys – I love this, Dickus, because there's some great ones. Uh, I'm going to give you guys a line from it. <clears throat> Here we go. Seriously, though, I did see a naked kid. I just I, – I saw it. Oh. I know what that's from. <laughs> you What's your quote from the movie? Uh, see? See? Well, I, uh, I, I, I normally find Rob Caudry super annoying. Ron Levinson, I can give – I can take him or leave him. But the two of them together are really adorable in Shimmer Lake. And there's a scene where it's just some weird – dialogue it's like oh what is this some weird cute dialogue where ron livingston's they were on a stakeout and he's like yeah i saw a naked kid crossing the street uh and they make fun of him and then later on he's like yeah no seriously i did see a naked kid i just i saw it uh nobody knows what to make of that and the, the structure of shimmer lake is such that things are mentioned that make no sense and then later the movie like a puzzle creates a very neat space for them so there's an awesome scene of a naked kid crossing a street in shimmer lake that's my third favorite Huh. There you go. I like that what very they, much. Okay, yeah, yeah. It does happen. Yep. Everything so in Shimmer Lake happens. Okay, yeah. that does happen. <laughs> what is your third favorite person crossing a street a street in a movie? Uh okay, I don't remember this very well, but I think this is what happens in it. At the end of the Pink Panther movie, the Pink Panther in the 60s, the Blake Edwards one, at the end there's a car chase and an old man's trying to cross the street and the cars keep like going back and forth and like chasing each other. And he finally gives up on crossing the street and just sits down and waits and then they crash off screen. That does sound like something that would be in a Blake Edwards Pink Panther movie. Peter Sellers is wearing armor and I think uh, the driver of the other car with the jewels wearing like a giant panda suit. Or uh, a shepherd. Okay, now you've gone too far. 
So it's Pink Panther. You, you stretched it into the realm of implausibility. I'm sorry. I bought What's it until that. The panda suit? The panda suit? Why would he be wearing a suit of armor in a car chase? Because he was in a museum. And he was hiding. Dingus, should I believe him? I don't know if we have a choice. <laughs> Pink Panther. He is our Blake Edwards uh, he, expert. He says, yeah, because he says it so definitively. He says, that Pink Panther movie, I think it's the first one, the Pink Panther movie, that one. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's that one, and that's how the movie ends, and then the All old right. man. There's an old yeah, man. It could be What's Up, Doc. Who knows? But we'll just have to su- suggest that it's the that Pink Panther movie, the first one, maybe. Because, Dingus, I will grant that whatever he's describing, I feel like it's something I've seen, even though I have no idea what movie it's from. Yeah, like someone trying to cross the street, and the cars whiz by, and he's like, oh, and he turns around to go the other way, and then the cars whiz by again, and he's like, okay, I guess I'll go the other way. And, whoa, isn't that funny? Let's draw out that joke a few times. I feel like right. I've seen that. Yeah. So then he right. sits down. But he's doing deadpan, the old man. He's like, oh, it's crazy. Well, yeah, no, he's not, right. he's not mugging at the camera, for sure. No. Right? He's yeah. like, uh, I guess I'm in a Blake Edwards movie. I better wait. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Diggis, what is your third favorite person? My third street? favorite. Yeah. Here's a quote from it. Well, I guess I'll run along to the public library, or I, I could go to that bookstore across the street, couldn't I? Hmm. Seven? No, it's uh, from the movie The Big Sleep. And it's a very simple thing. And some of the. This is just a simple thing. It's him crossing the street. To from one bookstore that's a fake bookstore to the real bookstore and just avoiding the cars that are driving past because I just love and this is one of the reasons I chose this even choosing it from watching a dumb movie um, people avoiding cars as they cross the street because uh, jaywalking the first place I lived in California was Burbank Burbank, California. And uh, the first job I had in Burbank, California was as a Starbucks in Media City Center. And if you didn't cross the street at a crosswalk and you didn't cross at the proper time at the crosswalk, you would get a ticket. They give you tickets for jaywalking. It's not like New York City where you just like walk willy nilly. Um, In Burbank, California, uh, Jurassic Park, the Lost World notwithstanding, if you're crossing wherever, you would get a ticket if you were crossing improperly. And I had lived in New York before, and it was weird to see this happening. So I just love this visual of people crossing in the middle of a street, especially in this old movie, The Big Sleep, where he's crossing from one bookstore to another. Oh, he's just like, I'm going over to that bookstore then if you can help me, because he's leaving the fake bookstore. It's a front for some other organization to go to a real bookstore because he's he's already unearthed this and he's going across this street. And what I really love about it is what uh, unfolds, because that's my favorite scene in the big sleep is after crossing the street and the rain starts to come down. And uh, and he has that scene with the woman in the bookstore across the street at, at, at Acme Books. And he says, you know, <laughs> I know. That's a roadrunner thing. That's not real. Yeah. yeah. It seems like that's, it. And that's another cross, crossing the street kind of thing. Um, but uh, <laughs> she's like, well, it's really starting to rain outside. And he's like, yeah. Well, you know, I've got a bottle of pretty nice rye in my pocket. I'd uh, whole lot 
prefer to get wet in here. And um, so she closes the store and they proceed to have a drink and talk um, or do whatever. Uh, but I love that that him just crossing the street and those old cars going past him and him having to sort of navigate traffic and go across that little street. It must be expensive to do period pieces like that. We have to get all the old cars together, and they must have put a lot of money into that. Yeah, when the Coens did the Big Sleep last year, it was really difficult for them to get all of that funding. What's uh, what's the movie where Kevin Costner's dead and everybody's sad and Glenn Close is crying in the shower? Superman. <laughs> Uh, Field of Dreams. Do you really not know what I'm talking about? Where Kevin Costner is dead and Glenn Close is crying in the shower? Yeah, they cut him out of the movie. Like, Kevin Costner only appears as a picture in the first part of the movie. Oh, Big Chill. Big Chill! That's what I thought Dingus was talking about. Okay, never mind. I was confused. This whole time, I was talking about the big sleep. You thought I was... Yeah, I was like, okay, so what? Does William Hurt cross the street and go to a bookstore? Yeah, but Big Big Sleep didn't... uh, Did William Faulkner do that? Is that a William Faulkner script? Yes, it's a William. Yeah, Parker. yeah. See that guy. That guy knows what he's doing. Yeah, and the, he and the California books. Raisins did not do any songs on it. <sighs> Don't understand that <laughs> reference. I do. I like you, Dingus. <laughs> I support your joke. Well, Kelly, even though you support his joke, you don't like his three by three because you apparently had trouble with it. So, what's your number two pick of someone crossing the street? Uh, my number two is in the motion picture <laughs> Bowfinger. Why are oh, yeah. your number two, Tom? Oh, am I first? Uh, oh, well, Kelly, oh, why do you buy Mine is Bowfinger, where uh, it's Eddie Murphy has to cross the street, and it's really wacky. <laughs> <laughs> Kelly, why let's do this a little out of order. You go first. Who what? crosses the street in Bowfinger? Eddie I know Murphy. what you're talking about. Yeah, and it's really sad, right? Like, it's like, oh, my gosh, that guy's going to get killed, right? Yeah, and, but it's CG cars, so you're not too worried. But then right. he finally does it, and then... Steve Martin goes, that's great. Okay, now I need to do one more for safety. And there's just like a shot of it. And like crossing the street. Now you're positive that that's from Bowfinger and not like Tower Heist. Yeah, because Bowfinger is two characters. Kelly, well, let me now go, go ahead. Oh. No, I was just going to say what's up. <laughs> <laughs> that's some of Eddie Murphy's best work is asking Gabriel Sudeikwa that question. It's great. In Tower uh, Heist? Yeah. It was the best part of Tower Heist. Remember the Snoopy float? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Kelly Wan, I'm going to give you a line from my second favorite person crossing the street. Dingus, you can oh. too. Here we go. <clears throat> I may not be a smart dog, but I know what roadkill is. Forrest Gump. Nope. This is the... <laughs> This is the slinky dog in Toy Story 2 after uh, Andy has been kidnapped, and they have to go rescue him, and he's been taken to a toy store. uh, And they see the commercial on TV, and they get the address, and this is the moment. So Toy Story 1, very self Toy Story 2, I honestly feel, is one of the rare perfect movies where everybody, the in this case the animators, uh, but the director, the cinematography, the actors, everything is just – everything understands everything else, and all the pieces fit together perfectly. It's right up there with Casablanca, with Chinatown, with Jaws. Maybe even the – maybe the Avengers would be included in that. The jury's still out on that. But Toy Story 2 I think is a perfect movie, and one of the cool things Toy Story 2 does is after Toy Story 1 is self-contained in the house, and you've got this fiction about human beings versus toys – 
Toy Story 2 brings it out into the wider world, into the real world. And their first encounter with the size and the power, the scope of danger in the real world is when they have to cross the street. And it's a little it's a little scene. Uh, it's, it's relatively short, but it's a great example of, of choreography uh, that Pixar does at their best. This, this idea of them causing chaos by getting up underneath little traffic cones, walking out in the street, and then stopping before a car hits them. And what this does to the traffic, the cars wreck, a big old truck jackknifes, a huge cement pipe rolls out, out of a cement truck and almost crushes uh, Mr. Potato Head. Um, this whole scene, the precision, the detail, the humor, and the scope of this, it, it reflects the precision, detail, humor, and scope of Toy Story 2 in, in a single scene, uh, them crossing the street, and I love that. Even the little touch where uh, gum that had stuck Mr. Potato Head to the street where he's going to get killed, like it sticks in the cement pipe when it rolls away. Uh, it's just vintage Pixar, uh, them crossing the street. So. It's more than one person crossing the street, and actually, I don't know if toys qualify as people, but there's my number two pick. That's beautiful. I love that. I well, love that. Guess, I didn't even think about uh, Toy Story too. Because some great this, idea. Yeah, the stakes of them like going out in the real world, and later they're going to have to get to the airport. And they, they drive a car for Pete's sake. Toys have to drive a car. They fight on a, on an airplane that's taking off. It's insane. Who would have thought such a thing? And this is a movie about death. Why would you make a kid's movie about death? That's crazy talk. Anyway, there we go. Second favorite people crossing the street. Dingus, we know Kelly Wan's second favorite is Bowfinger. Bowfinger. Now you come in, Dingus. What's your second favorite person crossing the street? All right, here's a quote from it. When the Chinese delegation comes out, we pick up the face. Uh, arrival. Oh, uh, that doesn't. That's not a bad guess, Kelly Wand. Oh, that's not a bad probably, guess. Probably wrong, but yeah, not a bad guess. I got nothing that beats that guess, Dingus. That's my guess as well. Then right, crouching a, dragons, a, hidden tigers. Here's what he says uh, immediately after that. Uh, the guy with the yellow armband always recognizes you, so just keep your head down and stay to my right. Oh, is it defending your life? No. Oh, Karate Kids. You know, recently, guy with the yellow one recognized you. No, defending, defending your life is my uh, is one of my runners up, but but it, it didn't quite make the list. What? Yeah, what I don't do you know mean? What? Be. All right, this is Edge of Tomorrow. Oh, so, good lord. Um, uh, nobody crosses the street in Edge of Tomorrow. I can't wait to hear this. Go ahead. All right, there was one that I thought I was going to use, uh, which was him crossing the street by rolling under the car. <laughs> Oh, that's what I thought you were saying. Uh, I'm not using that because it doesn't really feel like a street, um, but I was I really like that, and um, I can't because I'm totally weak when it comes to this movie. I can't not watch the whole thing. And there's a really great later moment uh, when they're going to Whitehall, uh, when they're finally going to see um, Brendan Gleeson for the first time, when they're going to Whitehall. And they're walking across the street, and there's this great cadence to their walk. And they're crossing the street to go into Whitehall. And uh, his line, this, uh, when the Chinese delegation comes down, comes out, we pick up our pace. And you see them crossing the street. And he does this great move. He does this great move. I love Tom Cruise so much. I'm, you know, I'm not afraid to say that. Um, these two Range Rovers come. There's a there's a gray one in front, black one behind, and they they 
the way this movie is paced is so beautiful because he's done this over and over and over again because that's what the movie is about. And he explains to her, Chinese delegation is coming out. We pick up her pace. Then they start to walk across the street a little more quickly. And he touches the um, the back side of the Range Rover that's in front as they go in just to make sure it's fully passed because he's done this numerous times and it's a simple crossing of the street but he's done it numerous times and i love that he's planned it out that these these vehicles are coming in chinese delegation is coming out they're going to take all they're going to distract everybody so that all of the uh all the attention of the guards is basically on protecting the chinese delegation he just touches that car real quick just to make sure it's stopped, and they walk up, and then he says, the guy with the yellow R-band always recognizes you. And then she goes slightly behind him, and he goes, you know, well done. Uh, I love that crossing the street. Edge of Tomorrow, that one, uh, I would prefer that just slightly over the one where he rolls under the car. Why would you call it Edge of Tomorrow and not Lift, I repeat? Because I don't recognize that. Any more than I recognize the special editions. Wow. All right. Way to take a stand. Yeah. That's harsh. See? That's right. I stood. It was a zebra, by the way, not a panda. Sorry. What was a zebra? What? In the Pink Panther. It's a zebra and a guy in a gorilla suit in a different car. There's so the whole time I was talking about this, you were researching <laughs> your Pink Panther pick at last? No, I remember. Yeah, yeah, tomorrow. I, you, you were just, just you just it was burbling up. Yeah, I just couldn't wait any longer. Yeah, yeah I remember. It was in his head. Yeah. <laughs> Why listen to me when you can just let that happen? <laughs> yeah, Kelly Wand. What's the answer to that question? I know, right? It's, it's a tough one. <laughs> All right, while you not. think about the answer to that, I'm going to give you my my first favorite person crossing a street. Now, I might get in trouble for this one. Eh, you know what? I don't think I am. I think I can spin this one out enough. Here's a line from this. <clears throat> See, Matt. It's, and these movies, I hate these movies. I cannot tell you how crappy these movies are, but here's a line from, from oh, my, my person hey. crossing a street. <clears throat> it's perfectly safe for midgets. Let's go. Uh-oh. That's the line. All right. This is the, the climactic scene, the finale of Feast 2, colon, <gasps> Sloppy Seconds. So as we all know, this Project Greenlight thing they did uh, uh. resulted in a movie called Feast, which is a horror movie about a bunch of people in a bar and monsters lay siege to it. And, and it's not – as far as horror movies go, you could do a lot worse. Uh, the guy who did it is John Gulliger. He's, he's the son of Clue Gulliger. Uh, oh, he yeah. wrote it with um, Marcus Dunstan. And Patrick Melton. These are the three people that won Project Greenlight. Marcus Dunstan, by the way, has gone on to do a, a, a fairly decent uh, Home Alone versus Saw meets Saw movie called what? Uh, The Collector. Yeah. Oh, I One thought that the- was a real crossover for a minute. <laughs> I like the idea. <laughs> and I was excited. Like, so, oh, anyway, these guys do Feast. They then do Feast 2. And eventually they do Feast 3, and they get progressively worse. Uh, they're just gross-out, sloppy comedy horror things about monsters, and uh, it's, And I watched all three of them today, which is kind of weird. Jesus Christ. What? You what? watched all three Feast movies today? 
them run while I was doing other things. So I kind of watched yeah, them. They were on three different monitors, and they were going at the same time. No, I watched them separately. And That's it was still barely legitimate. Dingus' son was around, and I didn't want him, you know, I'm watching movies with, like, buckets of blood and chicks with their tatas hanging out, running around for the whole movie, and there's, like, screaming and monsters having sex with people. It's just really weird and gross, and I, you know, I don't, I don't want to expose any child to that sort of thing. Right. So, at any rate, here's what happens at the end of Feast 2. Sloppy uh, seconds. Sloppy seconds, right. I have to get that in. Feast 3 is called, uh, colon, Happy Ending. I don't get that one. Ooh, uh, so it, it, fe- it that's feast not a meal two. reference. Uh, in feast two, they are uh, at Dear Sir. The monsters have run into the town, right? It's, it, instead of taking place in a bar, it takes place in a whole town. And a bunch of survivors, there's a, there's a jail. And they figure if they can get into the jail cell and lock themselves in and wait for the National Guard or whoever to come rescue them, they'll be okay. But. <laughs> There's a hobo in the jail who won't let them in. He locks the door. And he's like, ha-ha, I'm not letting you in here. So they have to take refuge in a, a hobo? building. He's like a, the town drunk or whatever. All right, all right, continue. He's, been, he's thrown in the in the hooskout to sleep it off the night before. Hooskout, right. So the monsters overrun the city. The hobo won't let them in the jail. Uh, so they have to go into a building across the street and hole up there. But it turns out the monsters are getting in there, so they go up on the roof. It turns out the uh, monsters are starting to climb up on the roof. They're not going to live there. They've got to figure out a way to get to the jail, to unlock the door, get the hobo. So they devise a plan to catapult a Mexican midget wrestler because they've, right. of course, two party members are midget luchadores with the masks and everything. Uh. Uh, going to make a catapult on the roof so amongst the survivors is two mexican there's two luchadore midgets uh and there's these biker chicks and using their motorcycles and their clothes so the biker chicks are now naked they fashion a catapult that will hurl the mexican midget across the street onto out of the motorcycles roof. well you need them i don't know why because they show the whole counterbalance thing oh, which is yeah works but for some you reason about this, yeah. hook up a motorcycle to it to get it to work whatever um the, the, the more trenchant point is that they use the biker girls clothes so now they're naked oh i see yeah. that's important that part I get. yeah when you're making a catapult you do need that so you're talking about crossing a street by throwing somebody across two buildings right. so they have to get We've across already done this all right okay go ahead Did we have a three by three of crossing the street dingus no, you had like melancholy. Had the catapult. I think it was. I think it was Kelly's catapult thing. But go ahead. Yeah, you're well, crossing, that's... you're crossing a street by. We might as well use airplanes. Yeah, crossing the runway. That's a good point. Uh, all right. Well, in that case, I'll pick Midnight Cowboy. <laughs> nope. All right, Kelly Wand. What is your second hey. first favorite? Yeah. Yes. You didn't tell us how what happens. Oh, well, Dingus says we've already heard it. So they, they fling the midget across the street. It doesn't work. He lands in the middle of the street. He gets eaten. <laughs> so he doesn't even cross it either. It doesn't... <laughs> no, Midnight Cowboy. Hey, I'm walking here. Uh, Dustin Hoffman and John Voigt, they're crossing the street, and the car almost hits Dustin Hoffman. So he slams his hand. He's like, I'm walking here. It's classic acting. And then later in a conversation with Olivier, Olivier says, try acting, my boy. <laughs> Not... Oh, oh my god. I know you're baiting. I'm not gonna okay. Kelly Wand Do your thing. What is the best crossing of a street in all of moviedom that does not involve naked biker chicks? I can't believe you used a catapult for crossing the street. And a midget. Drop Tom. 
The funnier bit, which I'd forgotten, uh, the coward of the bunch, you know, because you've always got one of them as the survivor. Right, uh, no coward. They, uh, they're on the roof, and they hear a baby crying. Oh, fuck. A baby has been abandoned. Oh, I think annoying. It's like, oh, yeah. going to get the baby. So here's the coward's redemptive moment, is he's going to go save the baby. So he comes down off the roof, he runs over to the baby, and there's a cute little baby. And he's like, hey, baby, I'm here to save you. And he picks up the baby, and the monsters are coming after him. So he's running to get away from the monsters with the baby. And across everybody's cheering him and going, yeah, awesome, right. do it. And he's running down the street. He's not crossing the street. And at a certain point, he realizes that the monsters are gaining on him, so he just chucks the baby in the air, and the monsters eat it so he can get away. <laughs> Actually happens. It's <laughs> two floppy seconds. It's kind of like Atomic Blonde, where if he didn't show up, <laughs> right. same thing. Exactly. Did I tell you I tried to enter that uh, green what, – what is it called? Green light? I guess if you'd written a story about monsters that want to have sex with things. I did too. Monsters. Oh, you, you did? Yeah. yeah. I didn't uh, – one guy hated what the script I wrote, and then he recommended it too. He's like, this reminds me of Star Trek reruns. Terrible. It was really funny. The, the feedback was actually – it totally justified the experience <laughs> and having to type something. Anyway, I've, I've never watched Feast. I've only heard Tom talk about it because I was afraid if I watched Feast, I would hate watch it because I didn't, you know, pass on to like the third level or whatever. However, that reality show works. Oh, you don't you don't have to have participated and pro- been turned down by Project Greenlight to hate watch Feast. Any of them. They're all terrible. Yeah. Uh, the How third you one watch is all three in one day. How do you do that? Yeah, uh, they're so silly. And some of the stuff is like kind of funny and cute. And for the, Tom, the, it is Feast. Mm, it's more of a an aperitif. There's cute girls in it, right, Tom? The, yeah, the final one ends, and they're they're just variously introducing characters and killing them off gruesomely, and it's just over the top gore, and it's silly, and they're they're awfully proud of how funny and how meta they are, and it's kind of dumb <laughs> actually. Um, but the final one ends where uh, so Clue Gulliger, who's the filmmaker's dad, he survives. Like he constantly dies in the movies. Like oh, never mind, he didn't really die. He's fine. He's in this next one too. Oh, so God. at the end of Feast Three, he survived. One of the women has survived, and one of the uh, luchadores has survived. And they've escaped the monsters. They've destroyed them, and they're out in the desert. And Clue Gulliger is like, okay, we've survived, and I guess you know now we've just got to get back to building civilization. And they're like, oh, we're gonna have sex, whatever. So so that's the joke, is it, he. He thinks, oh, we have to have sex and make babies. But at this point, a giant robot steps on the woman and the the Mexican luchadore, walks off, and a, uh, a a guy with a pompadour comes out singing in Spanish a song that recounts the events of all three face, uh, Feast movies while the credits roll. What's and the giant it. robot from? I know. <laughs> exactly. Is this sequitur? Yep. Can you, can you say the name... Clue is it? It's Clue Gulliger. I think so. All right. Clue. Yeah. So it's not to be. So John Gulliger is his son, not to be confused with oh, John Galvin okay. Jr., who's a good that. actor, Sorry. who's the guy in Hush and Ten Cloverfield Lane and Short Term Twelve. That guy's John Gallagher. I think it's Gulliger. Oh. I just know Clue Gulliger is an old character actor from old westerns and stuff. C L U Gulliger. Yeah. Right. So yeah. I so just wanted to make sure I was hearing two different words. Clue Gulliger. And so a robot steps on him, kills everybody but the filmmaker's dad, and then a guy sings a song in Spanish about all the movies. There you go. Feast. Three. Happy endings. Happy endings. 
There's a part in Project Greenlight, I remember, when they're shooting Feast, where Clue Gulliger does a uh, Christian Bale's like, get out of my eye line! That's what you never bother an actor when he's rehearsing. And then Clue goes, oh, Dad, shh! <laughs> <laughs> that part's cool. Uh, my number one favorite character crossing is Street is in Cat's Eye. Um, there's a cat in it, and it's in Vegas. And some people are betting on whether it can cross the street or not. And the guy uh-huh. always bets. Kenneth McMillan is betting. And he's all, come on, you can do it. And then the other, the couple is betting against the cat. They're all, stay there, stay there. And then the cat does it. And then a bunch of traffic like explodes. But the cat makes it. He's, cat lives. And then lives with Drew Barrymore. Kills a troll. So the cat eye. kills a troll. Yeah. You don't see cat's eye, bro? Why does the traffic explode? Oh, because they're trying to avoid the cat, so they hit each other. Like Toy oh. Story Two. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, what? A cat fights a troll? Yeah, at the end. I want to see this now. You haven't seen Cat's Eye? It's no, why would I see that? Incorporated in it. It's got the James Woods uh, where he's trying to quit smoking. Quit oh, it's smoking. a horror anthology. Oh, one right. There's that, a cat. Right. The cat's like the the link between them all, and then it's okay. the cat's the star of the third one. That's not based on a King story, but the second one's The Ledge with Robert Hayes. That's why I haven't seen it. It's some Stephen King nonsense. He has to walk around a ledge on the above a building. What's and, scary uh, about that? Uh, some pigeons try and peck his feet. <laughs> you know, there's a whole it's movie all... about Sam Worthington on a ledge, isn't there? Man on a ledge. Isn't that all about Sam Worthington on a ledge? Did I... yeah. Why would I see Cat's Eye when I can see a whole movie about a guy on a ledge? Why would I, I see Robert Hayes when I can see a Sam Worthington movie? Avatar, he's on the, he's on the edge of two cultures. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I don't even know who Robert Hayes... Oh, oh, Airplane, Robert Hayes. Yeah, and Angie. Okay, I do know who that is. <laughs> well, some people can see a movie about a man on a ledge, and some people can play bagpipes, but some people can't. I don't know what that's a reference to. Is that a line from your favorite man crossing the street? <sighs> it's like you can either walk on a tightrope and play bagpipes, or either you can't. It's either Atomic Blonde or Shimmer Lake. It's something it's I've atano- seen. It's Atomic Blonde. Ah, right. I got it. I win. You win. Tight ropes a good clue. for movies. But cat you guys color. just made me think of like of this. I don't know if we've done it before, but uh, incidental crashes where the protagonist is doing something and everybody else crashes and they just leave that in the dust. Like just people get. I always wonder about that. You know, where you it's know, looking the bandit. What are all the cro- cops doing afterwards? <laughs> Not the cops, but just just like normal people were. You know, somebody has to race through an intersection, like in. Yeah, uh, I, think, I think the last movie I saw that in was uh, the movie Prisoners, which I, I really didn't like. But so many cars crashed, and I just think all these people, what are they going to do? What are and they going to do? How, how are they going to share their insurance? I mean, what, 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 how is that all going to stack up? Of course, at this point, I'm 
more interested in how these people are going to deal with their insurance than I'm interested in what's one going on. One guy was in a zebra outfit, and one guy was in a night outfit. <laughs> I have to tell their insurance companies that. But I worry about that. What, what happens to those incidental people who get in car accidents when the protagonist is racing through something? I worry about the guards' families in like the transporter. All right, well, Dingus, we're over to you. Your right. Favorite person crossing the street. All right, so here's a, a bit of dialogue from it. In the city, you can't just run out into the street. We're still alive, aren't we? Poltergeist? It follows. Uh, it is neither of those things. Tom, do you have a guess? Uh, no. Uh, Midnight Arthur? Yeah. All right, here, let me do the first part of the first line. Kiki, in the city, you can't just run out into the street. We're still alive, aren't we? Kiss, kiss, bang, bang. Um, Kiki, is it anime? Everest? Kiki's Delivery Service. Yes, it is indeed Kiki's Delivery Service. Oh, really? Ha, you watch anime. <laughs> yeah, you hear that, Kelly? One, I got a, an anime reference. Tom got an Kiki's anime. Delivery Service. Never even seen anime? it. Oh, man, I love that movie. I want to see that. It's a cartoon. Now. It's for children. Um, and Wait, is that I the one where it, where, uh, where Phil Hartman plays the voice of a of a black cat? Yep. Oh my God, and, I have seen that. Oh, good lord! Holy shit! And, it's the well, worst voice casting in all of creation. Well, what's great about it is that Kelly just gave us a cat involved crossing the street, and this is also a cat involved crossing the street, although the cat is on a human shoulder. Um, Phil Hartman. But, I got to see this movie for the first time under circumstances that were that I felt were fairly uh, onerous at the time. But having watched it again with the Phil Hartman casting and all due respect and you know to the dead, uh, I got to see it uh, not. I got to see it in Russian because. Oh. Uh, uh, my girlfriend and her son were watching this movie on movie night and I was there and I made fresh popcorn for them and we watched this movie. And of course I can't understand any of it because, or I understand some of it. Um, but I was just enjoying the movie. I was enjoying the situation. I was enjoying being there. Um, but what a beautiful freaking movie. It is just beautiful. Uh, And hearing it in Russian, um, or I imagine just hearing it in Japanese uh, was a great uh, was a great experience. Um, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful movie, and you understand what's going on for the most part. Um, and there's this great moment uh, where Kiki, who is this uh, new witch who has to go to a new city because that's part of the deal. You have to leave your home to go to a new city and live away from your family. Uh, and she, uh, she finds her way into this, uh, this family who, who owns a bakery and they, they give her a room and, um, they say you can earn your keep by, you know, cleaning and, and, uh, working behind the counter for us. And then she starts her own business, uh, this delivery service because she's a witch and people just accept that these little cities, each one has a witch and she can fly around delivering things to people. And so she 
pitches her business to these people and says, I can have a delivery service for you where I deliver things for you. And they're like, all right, great. That's great. You can do that. And um, she's so excited about this that after she finishes her normal chores of cleaning everything, uh, she runs out to go shopping. And she runs out with her, her little cat. Uh, who is always on her shoulder and is this is great character until, as Tom said, until you hear it actually voiced by somebody uh, in English and terribly so. Um, again, all due respect. Um, but just hearing this little cat and just watching the way it's animated and not knowing the words the cat is saying, you kind of understand still what the cat is saying. And I really loved. I loved seeing the movie this way because there's this one moment where Kiki is going out shopping to start things for her delivery service. And she's used to flying around on her broom because she's a witch and she's got this special broom that she flies around on. And this is the first time I really thought about why would you choose a broom for witches to fly around on? Cause it seems really uncomfortable. But anyway, she has this really great broom, but she decides to go running through the city and at one point, she's going out to go shopping, and she just races across the street. And it's a very simple, quick moment. And a lot of these are quick moments um, where she has to dodge the traffic. She's crossing the street. She's, she's racing out without the normal understanding. Uh, and this is a, a weird thing that I've noticed in California. And again, I talked about this with Burbank because of the – strict rules about people jaywalking um people crossing the street just don't care <laughs> they don't look when they're walking in a parking lot they don't look either way they just trust that you're going to stop because they know they have the right of way and even women even women or men pushing baby strollers they don't look either way they just walk right out they don't care and it's just a freaky thing. That's not something I ever saw on the East Coast. Everybody looks either way because that's one of the first things you teach a kid. Look both ways before you cross the street. People in California don't seem to have that, that thing. And Kiki certainly doesn't because she's used to flying around on her broom. So she's, she just runs across the street and she has to dodge a, a van. She has to dodge a car. A motorcycle goes racing past her and her cat says you can't just do that in the city this isn't like being in the country this isn't like flying around on a broom you can't just r run across the street that's not the way it works here and she's like we're still alive right um which anyway i just thought that moment was delightful and i had such a great experience watching kiki's delivery service uh and part of it was this moment where i was like oh this crossing in the street moment, and it just happened a couple of days ago. Thing is, you could have watched all three Feast movies instead. <laughs> I could have. Including I'm Happy Endings. Idiots. Yeah. All right, That's how many of the listeners piece. chose Feast 2, Sloppy Seconds, as one of their favorite people crossing the street? All right, let's see if Aiden Keys did. Hello again, guys. In The Matrix... Neo and Morpheus edgily and symbolically watch against the flow, walk against the flow of other pedestrians crossing the street before seeing the lady in the in the red dress. This being one of <laughs> Neo's first times knowingly in the Matrix, he bumps into everyone while Morpheus glides through expertly. 
uh, Aiden Key's yeah. second one. After all the bridesmaids get food. Okay. Oh my God! Oh Aiden! Oh, Aiden. don't oh. go there. I mean, I guess do go there, but oh, yeah. don't go there. <laughs> don't go there. It's um, still Maya Rudolph's. Get I mean, continue. food poisoning from Kristen Wiig's restaurant choice. Maya Rudolph gets the most dramatic bout as she's seen running into the street in her gown, finally sitting down right in the middle of it. It's happening. It's happening. It happened. So similar to the midget, uh, the luchador in Slappy Seconds yep. uh, Feast 2, Slappy Seconds, she doesn't make it all the way across the street. She had she better camouflage. She makes it in the street, yeah. Oh. Aiden. Jamie That's Lee Curtis one. discovers her friend's corpses in the house across from where she's babysitting and is chased by Michael Myers. I don't know what movie this is, you guys. Uh, to the house next door where the people inside straight up ignore her for some reason, and then back across the street where she bangs on the door until the idiot kid comes and opens it for her. As she's panicking and running around, you can see Myers in the background calmly following her with a kitchen knife. So he's not, is he really chasing her, though, if he's walking and she's running, Michael Myers? He, no, Aiden says she's, he's calmly following her. Ah, right. It's a difference, Kelly Wand. Following and chasing are different. It's how fast you're going. That's a good point. Okay. See, it, 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 the movie's not called It Chases. Um, Arthur Joan Jelly says, number three, Ghost Writer. Hmm. Ewan McGregor. Oh, yeah. Leaves the Nicholas party. Gage. No, he's already Ghost said Ewan McGregor. Writer. Oh. Which I believe was my number right. ten movie uh, a couple years back. Kelly Wand has a blind spot for Roman Polanski. Yeah, I can't see ghosts. I'm not like a werewolf. Hugh <laughs> uh, McGregor leaves a party with a manuscript of an autobiography. He has figured out a code in the manuscript, but unfortunately for him, he never makes it across the street as he is hit by a car, and we see the pages he was carrying being blown through the street by the wind. Also, like the little Mexican luchadori, didn't make it across the yeah. street. Still counts. Right. It kind of wanted people light. to cross the street since Kelly Ron had already said things being hit by cars. The thing um, is, crossing is the act of departing one side, not necessarily the act of arriving at the other. Yeah, you're just so marking a sidewalk. I should have had a sister. The topic is having crossed the street. Yep. Tense <laughs> matters. Uh, Arthur's number two, 50 50. Uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is going for a morning run when he approaches an empty intersection with a do-not-walk light illuminated. He stops and jogs in place, waiting for the walk light. And while he's idling, a fellow jogger comes to the intersection, ignores the light, and runs across the empty street. He watches him go, but does not advance until the light changes. And when he starts running again, his back causes him immense pain, and he stops. What were the odds of that movie ending like that? Huh? <laughs> I mean, I do, I do that. I have to admit, I do that stupid, sort of moralistic thing too, where uh, when other people are crossing against the light, I'm like, oh, I'm just going to wait for the light. You guys, go ahead. Go ahead. No, once they someone do else does it, dingus, everybody can do it. Yeah, yeah. it's like doing a wave. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, 
not in the street, obviously, unless it's water. Arthur's number one is hell or high water. Uh, While which one? Chris Pine eats a steak and talks to Katie Mixon. Mm. Ben Foster walks to a bank that is yeah, literally across the street. I actually thought it was next door. Is it really across the street or is it next door? He's right. Arthur's it is across the street. Okay. Right, yeah. okay. And robs it. As Pine is leaving the restaurant, we see Foster running across the aforementioned street, <laughs> shirt full of cash, yelling at his brother, pull the car around. The image of the post-robbery Foster. Uh, on, how would you say the post-robbery Foster? Post-robbery Foster. Crossing the street is great. I wonder how much money he was able to Thanks, Yeah. <laughs> What's the line about Dr. Pepper in that movie or Mr. Pibb or what? What's the thing is, it sounds like something you'd remember. Mr. Pibb. Where he tells Chris Pine, get me a Mr. Pibb or get me a Dr. Pepper. And Chris Pine shows up with a Mr. Pibb and he has some observation about Mr. Pibb is for. Mr. Pibb is for idiots or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So good. So next we have Alexander Burns. Guess how he begins his email. By calling you a ding dong. Hey, ding dongs. And Tom? Uh, nope. He just says, hey, ding-dongs, exclamation point. He forgot to write that part. Right. Oh, so this three, isn't for me. Okay. Here are three examples of people crossing the street in movies. Okay. I can't. I have to break out of Kelly's cadence. It's hard, um, isn't it? Yeah. That's, Smoking that's, weed just makes it worse. She said. All right. So number three, heat. They're mostly moving down the street, mm. but the characters do cross it once or twice to avoid bullets. They're mostly successful. Mm. This is the second best scene in the movie. Uh, yeah. Well, mm. Alexander, Alexander thinks the diner scene is the best. And if you can't figure out, no, it's not. It's not the best scene in the First movie. First of all, it's not a diner. It's a restaurant. And second yeah. of all, yeah, no. They're not even both they there happy with each other. And they're not even in the same scene. It's a terrible scene. Wait, Alexander, what do you mean they're not both there with each other? Because they're not—they're never in the same shot. It's—it's all—it it looks like uh, Alfred Zemeckis film, filmed his stuff, and then Robert De Niro filmed his stuff, and then they were like, right. "Yeah, I don't want to like be in the right. film." Michael Mann does yeah. like one shots of that. Like it's not the two of them. Like there's not a bunch of stuff with the two of them together at the table. Maybe there is. I haven't seen it in a long time, but I just remember watching it and feeling totally gypped by it because I was because the movie was marketed slightly right, right. in the. This is the big showdown. You see them both on the screen together, finally. Yeah, Yeah, you get to see them eat happy endings together. Kelly Mond. I guess it speaks volumes that I don't remember the scene, Dingus. (laughs) So, yeah. All right, but Alexander loves that scene, apparently. That's his favorite scene in all movie, then. It's way better than a bunch of dudes shooting at the police and getting shot back at and doing cool gun reloads and covering each other's sixes and stuff. Yep. Ashley Judd's knobs. Ashley Judd. She got a big thing in your head all the way up. <laughs> and weird ding-dongs. Okay, Alexander. All right, Alexander Burns number two is Bowfinger. Oh, see? Why do you go to feet two, you'll see. Well, the movie still- as a whole doesn't do it for me. I still find the scene of Eddie Murphy frantically crossing an expressway very amusing. All this jeopardy for one shot of Steve Martin's movie, Chubby Rain. 
Now, see, Alexander, I remember that scene, and I don't remember the diner scene in Heat. I'm just saying. Right. So Murphy says, so, I don't know. Seems kind of dangerous. Martin says, think of it as an errand. Kelly, what did, did you just do an Eddie Murphy line? So, nice. <laughs> this is your punk-ass Bobby Pin. <laughs> uh, Alexander Burns' number one is Pulp Fiction. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Bruce Wallace. Yeah, I thought of this. <laughs> Wait, Wallace. he writes Bruce Wallace? Yeah. Oh, Bruce. Wait. Why is he writing Bruce, Bruce Wallace? Apparently, he married Marcellus. Marcellus. And <laughs> Marcellus Bruce Wallace. Good job, Alexander. You're going to call me Ding Dong. You're going to get the worst. Sorry. Yeah, he Alexander. loves the dining room, the diner yeah. scene in Heat. Thinks it's Bruce, Bruce Wallace. Wallace. Ding Dong. <laughs> it could be related to Mike Wallace, famous yeah, Or Marcellus Willis. They could be the same person. Who knows? <laughs> Bruce Wallace is in his car and stops at an intersection while Ving Rames or Ving Wallace I guess casually crosses the street with a cup of joe in hand they have a second to look at each other before Bruce hits the gas and hits Ving the string of events that ensue are unforgettable so Ving Rames basically makes it as far across the street as the Mexican luchador at the end of Feast 2 go stop you just saying. He doesn't does, – isn't that true? If he gets hit by Bruce Wallace's car and then chases him into a pawn shop, right? Isn't that what happens? Point. Yeah. String, string ensues, by the way. Ding dong. Um, thanks, Dad. Alex. Ding is, did anyone whose first name doesn't begin with the letter A write in? Uh, I'm going to say yes. Uh, Shaheen Ali. Oh, Ali. Well, his last name. All right. Uh, Sorry. Hey, you just three years. Sander, uh, an Arthur, and an Ali so far. Yep. Here are my pedestrian opinions. Get it? Uh, number three, Toy Story 2. Nice! Oh, God. Wait till he picks Feast 2 as number one. It's going to be even nicer. This has got to be a popular choice. Buzz Lightyear and friends disguise themselves as traffic cones to make their way across a busy boulevard to save their friend Woody. How do you know which way you're going if you're wearing a traffic cone? Would you just go off to the side? What do you mean? You just go in one direction. What's which? Why do you? Yeah, have you can't see. You can't see ahead. But you know just, if you're veering left or right. Kelly, one. When you walk in a straight line without looking in front of you, do you find yourself like veering off to one direction and unintentionally? Can you walk in I, a straight line, Kelly Wand? Well, I have my eyes closed when I cross the street because I'm scared. Um, what's that? Is it Flight of the Phoenix, the movie where uh, they crash in the desert? Right, and they have to fix the plane and take off or something. I've never seen it, but yeah. The title's right. a spoiler. Well, one of the, the British officers like, well, if I'm right-footed, I'm going to constantly, as I walk, I'm going to kind of go in the wrong direction. So I need somebody to go with me who is left-footed so that we go in a straight line. Are people right-footed and left-footed? We well, leave one foot, foot or the other, yeah. Yeah. It's the same as you dress left or you dress right. Right. Have you ever played soccer? Uh, no. <laughs> okay. Pass. <laughs> Shaheen Ali's number two, Blade Runner. Uh, uh, yep, yep. Crossing the street in L.A. is never easy. Although street again, crossing. Is it, well, do, they, do they go all the way across or is it along the street? Street crossing signals feature prominently in the sidewalk scene where Deckard is hunting Zora. The crossing signal's computerized voice cries, Don't walk. 
as Deckard sneaks up on Zora in a subway stairwell. Please, three by three, please don't pull me over. That's where they cross the seat in the scene. There is an actual street crossing thing. All right, yeah. Holly. Good. I hope we get more hot street crossing action in Blade Runner 2049. And uh, uh, Shane Lee, that's fine if you only have two and no worry about uh, Keith Leith, good day. Number three, the man with two brains. Oh, I'm listening. <laughs> yeah. Oh, this is a good one. Dolores Benedict is permanently lingerie-clad gold digger. She uh-huh. pauses while crossing a Beverly Hills Avenue to gesticulate in an insulting manner to her expiring husband and is knocked flying by the car of Dykel, Doc, Dykel, Dr. Michael Ferrar. Thank you, Kelly. Uh-huh. A nearby three-year-old diagnoses a subdural hematoma, which incenses... Dr. Hafar. And is clearly an epidural hematoma. Mm-hmm. Stupid kid. So she doesn't make him cross the street, Keith. Keith Lee's number two, David Prowse. Oh, David Prowse, David best Prowse. known for his compelling arm gestures while dressed as Darth Vader. <laughs> 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 Star Wars. In the Star he says as dressed as Darth Vader in the Star Wars. Who's um, Wallace in those? <laughs> Darth Wallace. <laughs> was the Green Cross man in UK road safety ads. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> crossing, crossing of roads featured heavily in these instructional films. That's how he got the Pollution of all else. This guy's really good at his arms gestures. <laughs> I really hope you accept the West Country Man Mountain, but if you don't, it follows. Hmm. Which what? may well be called Jaywalks. Oh, get it? Because your name's Jay. That is good. I wonder yeah, if they considered maybe. that title. Yeah. Wait, what does he think? So there's the there's the chick in the heels who runs out of the house at the very beginning, but then runs along the street, right? I don't think yeah, she crosses. Right. Yeah. That's not crossing. She gets stuck. When does Jay ever cross the street? I mean, I'm sure she does, but I just don't remember specifics. I don't either. In the wheelchair? That's in a parking garage. You can't cross the street yeah. in a parking garage, Kelly Wand. That's a good True point. Story. True story. Number one for Keith Leith is Paris, Texas. Ah. Uh. Interesting. Nine I haven't Harris. had any Vim vendors in a long time. Oh, Travis, Travis Henderson is trying to reconcile with his estranged son, Hunter. Jesus. And walks him home from school from the opposite sidewalk. Tom Foolery is involved. <laughs> uh, that's Tom's signature move. <laughs> towards, towards the end of the journey, he stops and waits for his son to do likewise, then crosses, and they walk up to the brow of a hill together. Regards. Thank you, Keith Lee. Yeah. Is Sam Shepard in uh, Paris, Texas? No, I don't know. Okay. I thought Jeff Daniels was. I thought Tatum O'Neill was. It's Paperman. <laughs> All right, so uh, last one is Chris Markinson. Hmm. Hey, guys. Here are a few inst- instances of characters crossing the road that I like. Number three, Victoria. Oh. There's a really nice scene where Sauna, is that how you say it? 
Sun S. Oh, so yeah, like Sun. It's like Sun. I think. Like I Sun. Know. I think you really say the E. I think. Right. Like sun, and Victoria are on her bike on a sidewalk, That's and then sun. sun starts to pedal down the street for about half a block before reaching the other side of the street. The bike gets quite far ahead of the camera, and the rest of Sun's friends start running to catch up, and the camera slowly catches up to them as well. I can totally see that in my mind, but I'm not. I guess it's like a long diagonal cross. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think you know what. Right away, that one's better than uh, Alexander Burns picking Heat, where they're just fighting their way down the street. Because at least there's intent to get to the other sidewalk, the other the sidewalk on the side of the street. So eventually, it's not like they're like leaving the bank and trying to rob another bank over there. Right. Yeah. Exactly. They're just using the st- the street as a as a path. There's nothing on one side or the other they care about. Yeah. They're bifurcating uh, the trail. Gleam in the cube. I don't think you pronounced that word right. Bifurcating. Cube. <laughs> it's like when somebody hurls. Oh, man, I ate so much I bifurcated. Oh. <laughs> Chris Parkinson's number two choice is Logan. What? Logan. Can't wait to hear this one. All right. Yeah. After Logan wakes up in the doctor's office, he quickly gets up and leaves, knowing that to stick around will put people at risk. I love the contrast between the strong, confident walk of Laura compared to Logan limping along as they make their way across the street to the vehicle uh, that Laura has procured. Hmm. Very good. I like that, Chris, because I went with a couple of simple, like, just I'm just crossing the street things. That's good. Does Wolverine have claws on his toes? No, but uh, but uh, Laura Keen does. What's her name? X Nine, Laura. Yeah, yeah, Laura she does. Claws on her toes. All right. Yeah. Daphne Keen plays Laura, who's X Nine. Yeah. What about his eyelashes? No, Kelly Wan, that's outrageous. Her name is Laura Wallace. Tom, come on. <laughs> his name is Logan Wallace. Oh, that's right. Wolverine, Logan Wallace. <laughs> and Chris Markets is number one. Victoria. Uh, Wait a minute. See. Nice. At a certain point in the movie, Victoria leaves a hotel, and she walks diagonally across an intersection and then down a sidewalk. I like how careful he is about that. Yeah. <laughs> no, he knows how fickle the police can be. Through, through police. He also knows how careful we are about spoilers, and good for him. Well, right. Victoria's right, so. full of people just walking across. I mean, when you're going to have a movie about people walking around Berlin, streets will invariably be crossed. I mean, I got no, no problem with those picks, but... Melancholia has a lot of streets crossed. Right. Melancholia? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, they well, hit, they all hit Kirsten Dunst in the face. Well, uh, as I was watching uh, Atomic Blonde again, speaking of Berlin, uh, there's a number of times where people cross streets in cars in that weird, like, intersection. I barely made it through the intersection kind of thing. Um, you know, before... You know, she gets knocked off in that. I think it's Chris who brought Chris Parkinson brought it up in his email that, like, where that, you're coming uh, up to an intersection with traffic going through it. Is that yeah, what you're you talking go, about? And right. you and you, right. and you just and you just cross. You can cross that. But he also did that thing where the the silent vehicle approaching before it hits something. Right. That you see in the background. That cliche. Yeah. Remember the program where the. Guys all lay in the street to train themselves to play football. Oh, that's better. right. And then uh, I doing that. Yeah. yeah they, they didn't die. cross. They just got – Were they planking or whatever? I don't know that it was planking at that point, but it was definitely oh. like a 
a phenomenon that idiots around the world would do. Yeah. That's awesome. I want to do that. All right. Do you guys have any runners up? Death Race 2000. I was going to pick some of those, but they're actually uh, not that good. Death Race is it's an even dumber movie than Feast 2, I would say. <laughs> so. Yeah. And then Meet Joe Black is the famous one, too, but, yeah, whatever. Maybe what the uh, Lost in America, where he becomes a crossing guard, doesn't he? Albert Brooks. Does he? Yeah. Oh. They run out of money, and so he becomes a crossing guard. And it's finally where he goes, all right, this is dumb, let's go back. But crossing guards don't cross the street, though. They stand That's there, funny. and other people cross it. No, they escort. No, they, they cross. Oh, they go halfway out, but then come back, right? Okay, so I guess all told, that is like crossing a street. If you go halfway out, guard the kids and come back. It's it, you've you still know, made the same. Walk. It's still the Ex- same radius. Exactly. Well, <laughs> we don't need to invoke circles, Kelly Wand. What circumference is the traffic circle circumference? You cross it. Well, you know when when you brought up defending your life, you know okay. what I was thinking of, right? I don't. But does he get hit by a car? Is that what? No, he's at the end when he's he's running from his tram to Meryl Streep's tram. He's crossing all of these different lines of trams before they go into the tunnels. And so that is sort of street-like, but it's more like runways than it is like a street. He's defending so, his life. I really love that movie so freaking much. Jesus. You don't like defending your life? I like it okay. I like it where she's all, I'm dead. She's like making fun of him. <laughs> I love how free and I easy like the Meryl Streep is. And she's just, she does does make fun of him. She's just like, oh, I'm just, I'm just so not afraid of anything and I'll eat everything I want to eat. I like that an example of his dumbness is using a chainsaw stupidly on a roof and falling through it. Like, up oh, to hell with you. Who yeah, that that. montage Clumsy is a real idiot. Yeah. That's how he died? No. No, they make you watch videos of you being stupid later. To oh, oh Meryl I see. Streep. Meryl Streep right. never did anything dumb. <laughs> okay. Right. And that's why she is going to get to move on to the next life, whereas he doesn't put his car in park at the gas station and can't stop it and jumps on the hood of it. Like I anybody it's like would. Passengers, Chris Pratt's the buffoon, Jennifer oh. Lawrence. Yeah, see? It's not like Passengers. Stupid it can't guys. be that bad. Yeah. All right. All right. Are you guys ready right. for next week's three by three? Totes. Donald J. Trump recently, okay. using Twitter, thought, I'm going to ban transgender folks from the military. <laughs> and the military was like, wait, wait, what? what? Huh? No. Eh, okay. Whatever. Whatever you say, dude. And then eventually, like, it looks like they're now trying to put through some sorts of plans, but there are, depending on who you listen to, up to to 15,000 transgender folks in the military who will be affected by this. Uh, so let's talk about transgender characters in movies. Not uh, like a, not like Linda Hunt playing a dude in Year of Living Dangerously. I mean a character in a movie who plays someone who is either transsexual or transvestite. Uh, a lot of times it's just silly, goofy, ooh, RuPaul is outrageous stuff. But I think movies are notable for having uh, other perspectives on this. And let's talk about some of those. So I want your three favorite transgender characters in movies. If you're listening and you have some ideas, please send those in to 3x3 at quarter3.com. <laughs> Kelly Wand, I expect you to be on your best behavior. Uh, are there really that many of them? 
Uh, I can, yeah, I'm already wondering about which, well, I mean, I've given this some thought, but I'm already thinking about the ones that I can't pick, and I feel bad. There's probably not as many as there are ringtones in movies. That's a good point. <laughs> or oceans. Uh, so participate in that by sending us your picks. It can be one pick, it can be two, it can be up to three. Don't go too crazy. We don't need four. Get that to, get that to us by midnight Pacific on August 27th, and we will read that on the air. Also, go check out Steven Soderbergh's latest movie, Logan Lucky. <laughs> yeah, we're going to see that, and we're going to talk about it next week. And if you've seen it, if you have any thoughts on it, we would love to hear those as well. Send those in a separate email to 3x3 at quarter to three dot com. Join us for Logan Lucky and a discussion of transgender folks in movies next week. I am Tom Chick. I've been here with Christian Murkowski. It's Christian Murkowski. And Kelly Wand. Cocksucker. can't unfuck what's been fucked. I prefer that we be more capable and prepared than lucky. Observation, reflection, faith, and determination. In this way, we may navigate the path as it unfolds before us. All right, and we have, what, eight more recharge cycles to go before we get to Aurigai 6? Is that a question, yes, sir? Yes, Walter, that's a question. That is correct. That was the scariest scene in that movie, huh, Dingus? <laughs> you should have become a poet or a rock star. Uh, yeah, Machiavelli. Machiavelli? Machiavelli. Machiavelli. I'm in love with you. Machiavelli and Machiavelli. Ma- Ma- Machiavelli. <laughs>